This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. You do for America. You know that. Remember how Trump made fun of your wife and then you go become best friends with Trump? I know, but why do you do that? You go become best friends with Trump after he makes fun of you and your wife. Why do you do that? I understand you don't want to defend Texas. No, see, I do love America. See, you don't. You care more about the border between Ukraine and Russia than you care about the border between Texas and Mexico. Why is that? Why do you care about that? I know, but why are you a globalist? You're a globalist, bud. You know it, Ted. Hey, Teddy, you're a globalist. You're a globalist, Ted. You know that, bud. But, and that's why you're a coward and a liar, and you know that, and I know that, and that's why you're afraid to stand up for it. When Sir. people were freezing and dying, you were in Cancun, Sir. Mexico. You remember that? You remember when you're at the all-inclusive buffet while people were freezing? Go away. No, but do you remember that, Ted, when everybody was freezing? Yeah. Remember on. that when people were dying? That was Senator Ted Cruz being called out by a member of his own party at the Texas GOP convention. Now. A lot of that was accurate. I mean, calling him out for leaving when Texas was literally freezing is something that is uh, necessary to bring up every time you see Ted Cruz. But other elements there were bad. For example, using the term globalist is an anti-Semitic dog whistle. So this is an individual, presumably, who is to the right of Ted Cruz. But you have to acknowledge that some of the things, some of the... Um, the accusations that he's bringing up are just straight up factual. For example, when it comes to Ted Cruz being a coward and cucking to Donald Trump, let me remind you who Ted Cruz is. But you mess with my wife, you mess with my kids, that'll do it every time. Donald, you're a sniveling coward and leave Heidi the hell alone. So will you support him as the nominee? I'm going to beat him for the nominee. That's not answering the question, not, Senator. I am answering the question. Donald Trump will not be. He's leading right now. You Donald just looked in that Trump camera and said he is a coward. Will you support him as the nominee? Donald Trump will not be the nominee. Beta! Beta! Yeah, that's Ted Cruz. That's Ted Cruz. Love it. Love it. So now the reason why so many MAGA Republicans are turning on individuals within the Republican Party who they perceive to be establishment is because for decades now, the GOP has been cultivating a very far right base by pandering to extremists. And Texas in particular is especially bad. And at this convention, they adopted an explicitly fascistic anti-LGBTQ platform calling homosexuality abnormal. They also approved an anti-democratic measure calling Biden an illegitimately elected president. And even if they're not explicitly calling for violence in their platform, when you adopt an anti-democratic platform and claim that the president of the United States was illegitimately elected, what do you think that primes people to believe. It gets them to think that, well, if we can't actually make our voices heard and affect political change through democratic means, we have to do violence. And Charlie Kirk just last week claimed that the GOP wasn't going to give power back once they take it. And this is an individual who claimed that the election was stolen. So when you say that democracy is dead, the election was stolen, is it really that big of a surprise when people show up to your events, your fans show up to your events 
and say, well, if the election was stolen, when are we going to start using the guns and start killing these people literally? I mean, this is what happened with Charlie Kirk, but he hasn't toned down the rhetoric, even if he knows this is leading people to at least implicitly accept that violence should be the norm. Now, Ted Cruz, what he saw there was not as bad as what Dan Crenshaw got, because Dan Crenshaw was also heckled, but something very ominous happened at the end, and one of the people who was going after Dan Crenshaw said something sh that should worry everyone in the GOP, and really not just the GOP, but worry everyone more broadly speaking, because the rhetoric is escalating very quickly. It's $5 here and you're giving Ukraine all this money? And red flag laws too, Dan? That's ridiculous. Hey, Dan, why are you on the World Economic Forum, Young Global Leaders? World Economic Forum, Young Global Leaders. Dan, what's Klaus Schwab's number? You got Klaus Schwab's number? Klaus Schwab's number, Dan. Hey, Dan, World Economic Forum, Young Global Leader. Hey, Dan. Dan, how are they? Dan, what's better, Aspen or Davos? Hey, Dan. Dan, how's Davos? Nice mountains there, Dan. You like Klaus Schwab? Hey, is Klaus Schwab your grandpa, Dan? Do you have Thanksgiving dinner at his house, Dan? Hey, Dan, does Santa Claus give you presents on Christmas, Dan? What are you doing? Charles Barkley, move. I'm trying to buck. Dan, Klaus Schwab is literally your daddy. Huh. Take it easy. Dude, he just sold us out. Why are you defending this guy? You have a right to force your opinion, but not to beat Beat people. I didn't push nobody. That was another tall guy named Alex. Guys, look up the World Economic Forum. Dan Crenshaw is a sellout. Just because he has R by his name does not make him a good person. We vote against Dan. Wake up. Dan is a fraud. Dan is a fraud. Dan Crenshaw is a World Economic Forum sellout. Dan Crenshaw is a World Economic Forum young global leader. Huh? I don't care if I'm pissing you off. You are. You're the reason we're in this situation, ma'am. Dan Crenshaw is a fraud. <laughs> Dan Crenshaw sold all of you out, and you guys are still voting for him. So look, there's nothing wrong with calling out the corruption of your own party. I mean, members of the left within the Democratic Party call out corporate Democrats all the time. But here you see how quickly the rhetoric escalates to where calling out Dan Crenshaw comes with the threat of we should hang him for being corrupt. And this is going to only get worse because members of the GOP are getting increasingly uh, violent in their rhetoric. For example, U.S. Senate candidate Eric Gradens put out this ad this morning calling for rhino hunting and uh, take a look because he's not very subtle in his call for violence against members of his own party i'm eric Drayton's navy seal and today we're going rhino hunting the rhino feeds on corruption and is marked by the stripes of cowardice
join the MAGA crew, get a rhino hunting permit. There's no bagging limit, no tagging limit, and it doesn't expire until we save our country. So after pandering to extremists for decades, it's all culminated in this. They're no longer just happy and satisfied with this rhetoric that's anti-immigrant and homophobic. They want violence now. Their thirst for violence is insatiable. And now they're turning on members of the GOP who aren't going to explicitly suggest that violence is necessary. And they're going to go out of their way to target Republicans who aren't letting them do violence. Because again, if you claim that the election was stolen and you no longer can affect change politically, through the democratic process, then the logical conclusion is violence is necessary now. And there they are in that ad hunting for rhinos, as you saw it. And this is the GOP's doing. Now understand that like they're claiming to care about corruption here, but yet they don't care specifically about how Trump drains his base of resources, personally profited off of the presidency. But the reason why Trump gets a pass for his corruption is because he will explicitly suggest that violence is necessary and either not condemn violence when it happens or encourage it to happen. He's the individual who incited the January 6th insurrection. So that's why they give Trump a pass because Trump is going to allow them to do what they've been wanting to do for quite some time now. Now, Eric Swalwell had the right take on this. He says, let's place the blame for this violent ad where it belongs at the doorsteps of Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell. They failed to confront and condemn the MAGA radicals of their party. Now it's out of control and threatens everyone's freedom. And I have a lot of disagreements with Eric Swalwell, but he's correct here and it's necessary for Democrats to call that out. Right. Because Kevin McCarthy, we now know that internally he was freaking out on January 6th, but yet publicly he is a Trump supporter. Same thing with Ted Cruz. Same exact thing. So what we're seeing currently is the GOP's base become increasingly fascistic while the GOP itself, the establishment wing of the Republican Party, wants to remain proto-fascist. They want to continue using bigoted rhetoric against immigrants and LGBTQ plus people, but for so long, the base has yearned for violence to where that's just no longer acceptable. They want to actually take violent action against minority people. So when individuals like Ted Cruz and Dave Rubin and Candace Owens foster hatred against minorities like trans people, they don't understand that they are riling up extremists that will inevitably come for them. When Ted Cruz panders to Trump's base rather than unequivocally condemning them, well, they end up coming against him. So we're seeing the GOP's base increasingly get frustrated. They don't want to just not do violence anymore. They're becoming very, very extreme, right? And the GOP has, has fostered this for a very long time now. And this is what's happening. This is now the result of them lying in the bed that they've made. But as Swalwell pointed out, this is on Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell. You know, it doesn't just impact them. It now threatens democracy because the GOP's base is explicitly fascistic. Most of them are. And you have most of the party either being taken over by MAGA chud fascists or pandering to them like Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell do. Now, that's not to say that Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy aren't fascist themselves, but the difference is that they're proto-fascist right they break democracy and destroy democratic institutions in 
a non-violent way, whereas the MAGA portion of the GOP base, they actually want violence. They want to use the guns that they've been accumulating for years, and increasingly they can't contain themselves, and they have to explicitly call for violence against members of their own party that won't let them do violence or won't endorse violence. So, you know, on one hand, it's satisfying to watch individuals like Dan Crenshaw and Ted Cruz, who have pandered to MAGA chuds, have to deal with, you know, what they've created, have them battle the monster that they themselves have uh, designed, their own little Frankenstein, so to speak. But at the same time, it is a worrying sign and you can't just laugh it off because the increasing radicalization and extremism of the GOP's base genuinely poses a threat to democracy. And if it's not contained, then democracy can't survive under these circumstances with this level of extremism. Both Bill and Hillary Clinton are sounding the alarms and they're letting people know that democracy in the United States is indeed in danger because, as we've all noticed, fascism is on the rise and these fascists do not believe in democracy. So in an appearance on The Late Late Show with the insufferable James Corden, Bill Clinton stated that there's a fair chance the U.S. could lose its democratic system within the near future. And in an interview with Financial Times published on June 17th, Hillary Clinton also stated the same thing and claims we're on the precipice of losing democracy, but she does have a strategy that could thwart democracy from dying by stopping fascists from coming to power in the first place. And the way that she believes we can stop fascists is by conceding to fascists and letting them have a dub. Because that's how you retain power, apparently, according to her, is by adopting some of the things that the fascists want. So this portion of the interview that she had with Financial Times is what I really want to focus on in this video, because these two paragraphs in particular that I'm about to read to you went viral, and for good reason. Quote, my espresso has arrived. Clinton asks for more iced tea. I cannot allow the lunch to end without questioning the direction of her party. I say that Democrats seem to be going out of their way to lose elections by elevating activist causes, notably the transgender debate, which are relevant only to a small minority. What sense does it make to depict J.K. Rowling as a fascist? To my surprise, Clinton shares the premise of my question. Quote, we are standing on the precipice of losing our democracy and everything that everybody else cares about then goes out the window she says, look, the most important thing is to win the next election. The alternative is so frightening that whatever does not help you win should not be a priority. So first of all, I don't necessarily know that I've seen anyone call JK Rowling a fascist because she's not a fascist, a transphobe. Yes, but a fascist. I don't think I've seen anyone make that claim, so I don't necessarily know where that's coming from if they're referencing a particular thing. But essentially, her argument is that we should make a utilitarian calculation sacrifice a small minority in order to benefit the greater good because if we give in to fascists and the democratic party doesn't defend trans people well then perhaps that won't make them as unpopular and then they could win this next election and stop fascists from taking power the problem is that this isn't going to end well and the reason why i think it's logical to deduce that this strategy of giving into fascists isn't going to end well because historically giving into fascists 
has not ended well. Now, I shouldn't have to explain this to Hillary Clinton, who was the former Secretary of State, but this is why defending a small minority from fascists is very important. In the 1930s, Germany's Jews, some 500,000 people, made up less than 1% at 0.8% of the German population. Most considered themselves loyal patriots linked to the German way of life by language and culture. Nazi anti-Jewish policy functioned on two primary levels, legal measures to expel the Jews from society and strip them of their rights and property while simultaneously engaging in campaigns of incitement, abuse, terror, and violence of varying proportions. There was one goal, to make the Jews leave Germany. On March 9th of 1933, several weeks after Hitler assumed power, organized attacks on Jews broke out across Germany. Two weeks later, the Dachau concentration camp situated near Munich opened. Dachau became a place of internment for communists, socialists, German liberals, and anyone considered an enemy of the Reich. It became a model for the network of concentration camps that would be established later by the Nazis. Within a few months, democracy was obliterated in Germany and the country became a centralized single-party police state. In September of 1935, the Nuremberg Laws were passed, stripping the Jews of their citizenship and forbidding intermarriage between Jews and non-Jews. Jews were banned from universities, Jewish actors were dismissed from theaters, Jewish authors' works were rejected by publishers, and Jewish journalists were hard-pressed to find newspapers that would publish publish their writings. Now, obviously, this isn't a one-to-one -one comparison. You know, this isn't exactly what's happening to trans people in America, but we have to look back and learn from history and acknowledge that the Nazis used hatred of Jewish people to galvanize folks, galvanize people against them. And it didn't start with concentration camps. It started with legal and social persecution. So if you were to give in and allow fascists to have a victory, to not stand up for marginalized minorities, you're not stopping fascism, Hillary Clinton. You are emboldening fascists. Now, what are Republicans doing with regard to trans rights? Well, in Texas, they're investigating parents who seek out gender-affirming care for trans children. In Florida, Ron DeSantis is copying Hungary's dictator Viktor Orban and forcing queer teachers back into the closet. And anti-trans propagandist Matt Walsh of the Daily Wire already publicly advocated for the criminalization of transitions for adults. So the Republican Party is using hate against trans people as a political tool because this very small minority doesn't have a lot of visibility. So there's ignorance there, which is being weaponized currently because there's ignorance, because there's a lack of understanding. The GOP is trying to use hating on them in order to get power, to throw red meat to their base, in order to galvanize people. And again, it's not identical to what Nazis did in Germany to Jewish people. But there are enough similarities that we should be able to learn from. And the problem here is that Hillary Clinton is unable to put aside her own prejudice against trans people because, like J.K. Rowling, she's a turf. She does not believe that trans women are women. She's a bad person. And so what Hillary Clinton is recommending is to become more reactionary as a society to stop the reactionaries from taking power. In what world does it make sense to let the fascists win on a certain issue in order to stop them from winning. Excuse me? No, this is cowardly. In order to actually defeat fascists, you push back against them. You stop them from weaponizing hatred against marginalized people. But Hillary Clinton doesn't understand that. And part of it is she's just trying to look for an out because she bears a lot of culpability for the state of this country, right? She ran against Donald Trump in 2016 and she lost because she had no agenda. She wasn't running on trying to expand healthcare in this country or expand education to people. It was just Trump's bad. 
Well, that's not going to work. The neoliberalism that your husband championed in the 1990s also put us in this situation where, I mean, people are desperate. People are going hungry. People in the United States are struggling to pay the bills. And when people are that desperate, they become more susceptible to radicalization and they start acknowledging that, okay, since I'm poor, it must be the immigrants or the trans people that are responsible for this and not the economic policies here. Now, that's not to say that if we got rid of neoliberalism and had socialism, that anti-trans hate and racism and bigotry would diminish all of a sudden, but people are more likely going to believe these fascistic arguments, believe that trans people and women should become second-class citizens if they don't have any anything else to hang on to. But Hillary Clinton literally is saying here, give in to fascists to stop the fascists. No, if we actually listen to Hillary Clinton's strategy, this so-called utilitarian calculation that she wants us to make, the fascists will get more powerful, which is why nobody should listen to Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton should go away and hide her fucking face because what she's saying is bigoted and what she's saying is exactly what the fascists that she's warning you about want to hear. The 2024 presidential election is still a ways off, but we are already seeing a lot of parallels to the 2016 election where you have two historically unpopular candidates facing off, which always ends up leading to the worst case scenario. So a new poll has just been released and it shows that most Americans are on the same page with regard to Donald Trump and Joe Biden. As Newsweek explains, a new poll has shown that a majority of Americans don't want either Joe Biden or Donald Trump to run as president in 2024. The poll conducted by YouGov with Yahoo was taken between June 10th and June 13th, 2022, and asked 1,541 people a series of questions. On the question regarding should former President Donald Trump run for president in 2024, 55% of people said no, while 31% of people said yes. When broken down into political affiliations, 80% of Democrats voted no, while 14% of Democrats voted yes. For Republicans, 25% voted no, while 58% voted yes. President Biden received an even more negative verdict from poll participants. When asked whether Biden should run again for president in 2024, 64% of people said no, while 21% said yes. When broken down into political affiliations, 36% of Democrats said no, while 43% of Democrats said yes. Of Republicans, 84% said that he should not run, while 10% said yes. Yeah. So what Joe Biden needs to understand is that people didn't vote for him in 2020 because they were enamored by him or so captivated by his message, whatever that was. They voted for him specifically because he's not Donald Trump. He's not Donald Trump. Now that worked for him in 2020, but can that work a second time? Likely not. Because here's the thing with the American electorate. See, we go back and forth. It's this pendulum to where they see how horrible Republicans are, and then they overwhelmingly vote for a Democrat. But then when they're reminded how Democrats also don't do anything, they tune out, they don't vote, Republicans win again. And once they're again reminded how terrible and frightening Republicans are, they overwhelmingly vote for a Democrat again. It's the same spiral that we're seeing, the same fucking cycle that is indeed tantamount to a death spiral. Because each time we go back and forth, the country circles the drain another time. So Biden needs to understand that if he cares about America, the best thing for this country that he could do would be to step down and let someone else run. Now, that's not to say that the Democratic Party has anyone who's exciting because they're just going to try to push another neoliberal down our throats. That's what the DNC will almost certainly do. But still, 
to just run the same person who has been a demonstrable failure would be mental. You're essentially giving Donald Trump the keys to the White House. And this time, I think it's reasonable to assume that he won't want to give up power once he gets it again. Now, Biden's net disapproval sits at 39.8%. And here's how he stacks up against his predecessors. For the most part, at the same time in their presidencies, he's comparatively more unpopular. Trump was also underwater, but he hovered at around 40% at the same time in his presidency. Obama was around 45%. Clinton was less popular than Obama, but his popularity steadily increased as was the case with Reagan. But overall, Biden is in worse shape. Now, the most stunning part about this poll, before I read that to you, um, you've got to know about a different poll. So when it comes to Donald Trump, an ABC News Ipsos poll found that 58% of Americans want him prosecuted for his role in the January 6th insurrection. 58% of Americans think that someone who could very well become the next president again should be prosecuted. But yet, in spite of that, in spite of everything that we know about Donald Trump and the danger that he poses, here's what would happen if the 2024 election were held today and it was Biden versus Donald Trump. As Newsweek explains, when asked who they would vote for if Trump and Biden ran against each other in the 2024 election, the majority favored Trump. 42% of people said that they would vote for Donald Trump, while only 39% said they would vote for Joe Biden, and 20% said they were not sure. Okay, so most Americans do not want Joe Biden or Donald Trump to run for president again, but in the event they were to face each other once again, they would opt for Donald Trump. So this is kind of what we saw in 2016. Both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were historically disliked, but people opted for Donald Trump. Because the difference between the Democratic Party's base and the Republican Party's base is that the Republican base always turns out, whereas the Democratic Party's base has to be excited. They have to be galvanized. Now, sometimes hate motivates them, right? Just voting against someone like Donald Trump motivates them, but not always. And not after they've had four years of a neoliberal president who hasn't done anything to drastically improve their lives. Um, but the thing about Biden is, there's things that he can do if he wanted to become more popular. When he was first elected, he had a higher approval rating when people were getting monthly checks, the child tax credit, when people got COVID relief checks. But as time has gone on and he's done nothing for the American people, his popularity has steadily declined. So he should step down and not seek a second term if he actually cared about America. But if he wanted to remain in power and win, he has to deliver for the American people. Now, legislatively, maybe that's not possible because of Mansion and Cinema, but if he actually put up a fight, maybe the American people would view him differently. If he actually used his executive power to cancel student debt and decriminalize marijuana, maybe the American people would start to change their tune about Biden. But he's likely not going to do that, and the Democratic Party, like they previously did, they're going to see this iceberg dead ahead and sail right the fuck into it and not do a single thing to divert course because... That's essentially what we've seen. That's what we've come to expect from the Democratic Party, right? They are effectively complicit in the rise of far-right extremism in this country because they do nothing to try to stop all of these arguments from landing. When Trump says it's immigrants or LGBTQ plus people who are responsible for the state of this country, well, if the Democratic Party aren't putting up an alternative message, a lot of people are going to be susceptible to whatever Trump is saying because it's an incorrect explanation, but it's an explanation nonetheless, right? So if they have a scapegoat, if they can blame immigrants for their low wages, 
then that's at least an answer, right? So Democrats, they've got to change. But the reason why they won't change is because this party has been corrupted by special interests. And there's been opportunities in the past to change course with Bernie Sanders. But what happened? You have individuals like Barack Obama coming out of hiding to make phone calls and tell everyone to drop out and get behind Joe Biden so Bernie doesn't win. And the same was true in 2016 when the DNC did everything to sabotage Bernie Sanders' campaign. And that's not the only instance where Obama has intervened to stop the Democratic Party from changing directions. In 2017, when there was a DNC chair race between Keith Ellison and Tom Perez, Obama made calls on Tom Perez's behalf to get people within the DNC to support Tom Perez because they don't want to change the direction of the party, even if the country is yearning for it. So because Democrats refuse to change and grow with time and embrace their younger base, more progressive base, well, this just paves the way for far-right extremists like Donald Trump to continue to win elections and do more damage to the country. So it's not necessarily surprising, but these polls really should put things into perspective, right? If you're a Democratic Party voter and you loyally vote in every single election, vote against the incumbents, find out who's running, who's a progressive and vote for them because the current status quo, the establishment of the Democratic Party, they're not just killing the party, they're killing the country because they are enabling Republicans by remaining so fucking unpopular. The Texas GOP is holding their convention and they're always incredibly unhinged and they broadcast to the rest of the country how extreme they are, but it really feels like in a multitude of ways, they're trying to up the ante this year. For example, they've adopted a platform that refers to homosexuality as abnormal and they pledge to oppose validation of transgender people and they've also approved a measure explicitly denying the 2020 election, calling Joe Biden an illegitimately elected president. And as patriotic as they purport to be, they also have adopted a measure calling for a vote for Texas to secede from the United States in 2023. Yeah, so this year it seems like they're really going above and beyond to broadcast their extremism to everyone, but let's take a look at um, specifically what they say about secession. This is according to Newsweek. The demand for Texans to be allowed to vote on the issue in 2023 was one of many measures adopted in the Texas GOP's party platform following last week's state convention in Houston. Under a section titled State Sovereignty, the platform states pursuant to Article 1, Section 1 of the Texas Constitution, the federal government has impaired our right of local self-government. Therefore, federally mandated legislation that infringes upon the 10th Amendment rights of Texas should be ignored, opposed, refused, and nullified. In another section on state governance, the platform states that Texas Republicans want the state legislature to pass a bill in its next session requiring a referendum in the 2023 general election for the people of Texas to determine whether or not the state of Texas should reassert its status as an independent nation. Now, for a second, just imagine Texas seceded. This would catalyze a massive refugee crisis because I think that thousands, if not millions of people would rush to leave because we all know what type of government Texas would be. It would be a theocratic, Christian nationalist, totalitarian regime. It'd be the Christian equivalent of Saudi Arabia. It would be absolutely miserable as much as they talk about freedom, right? Um, but this is not necessarily a new phenomenon. I mean, the Texas secession movement has been around for a while. It's recently known as Texas 
after Brexit. But what's different, what's changing with regard to talk of secession is that politicians are pandering to crowds of people who do want to secede. For example, insurrectionist Marjorie Taylor Greene called for a national divorce between blue and red states. And in 2021, Ted Cruz was talking about Texas potentially seceding after he was asked about this. And at first he says no, but then he kind of talks himself into supporting it under certain circumstances that are completely made up and based on um, conspiracy theories. Take a look. I understand the sentiment behind the question. I'm not there yet. And we actually had a debate over, over uh, drinks last night after the show. Uh, listen, I think Texas has a responsibility to the country. And, and, and I'm not ready to give up on America. I, I, I love this country. And, and I think without Texas, look, Texas, we're brash, we're, we're not shy, we're sometimes larger than life, but, but Texas is right now an amazing force keeping America from going off the cliff, keeping America grounded on the values uh, that, that built this country, on the values of freedom, I think we have a responsibility. Now, listen, if, if the Democrats end the filibuster, if they fundamentally destroy the country, if they pack the Supreme Court, if they make D.C. a state, if they federalize elections and massively expand voter fraud, there may come a point where it's hopeless. We're not there yet. And if there comes a point where it's hopeless, then I think we take NASA, we take the military, we take the oil. <laughs> take me. Please take me. I don't want to be trapped. What, what about Joe Rogan? Are you going to take him? Joe Rogan? He might be the president of Texas. <laughs> Actually, Joe Rogan would probably be too liberal to be the president of Texas because he at least supports legal weed, but the Texas GOP does not. So they claim that they have more freedom in Texas, but here in the Pacific Northwest, we can walk into a store and buy weed. We also, more importantly, don't hunt down parents with trans children. So I'd argue that we have more freedom here than you have in Texas. But freedom to them means an entirely different thing. Freedom to them means that they get to impose their Christian nationalist views on everyone else in the state. And to them, having their own country would give them the opportunity to go crazy and support their theocratic agenda. But Ted Cruz, notice how he says, well, you know, I'm not ready to give up on America yet, but under certain circumstances, if, you know, they keep cheating and doing election fraud and they keep ruining the country, if they get rid of the filibuster... I mean, you might as well just say, sure, I endorse it if MAGA chuds do determine that this is where we should go, because you are completely beholden to the Trump wing of your party, Ted Cruz, and you're an extremist yourself. You've been pandering to them. So what he's doing there is giving himself leeway so that way, if this does become a popular thing, well, he can say, look, I said that I supported it. Like he's trying to very intentionally give himself plausible deniability. And it's so slimy and disingenuous, but this is who Ted Cruz is. This is how he operates. Uh, now, the question is, can Texas legally secede? And the answer is 
No, they cannot. The myth that Texas can secede from the U.S. continues because of the state's history of independence, according to the Texas Tribune. Texas declared independence from Mexico in 1836 and spent nine years as its own nation before becoming a U.S. state. Texas then seceded from the Union in 1861 before being readmitted following the end of the Civil War in 1870. The U.S. Constitution makes no provision for states to secede and in 1869, the Supreme Court ruled in Texas v. White that states cannot unilaterally secede from the Union. If there was any constitutional issue resolved by the Civil War, it is that there is no right to secede, the late Justice Antonin Scalia once wrote. So legally, they cannot secede. But then again, they don't really care about the Constitution, and um, they only cite the Constitution if they can weaponize it to take away rights from Americans and marginalized people. So, you know, that's not going to stop them from fighting for secession. And this article citing Antonin Scalia as a way to kind of, uh, I don't know, get them to think that it's unacceptable or not constitutionally permissible because another hyper-conservative said it. I don't think they're going to find that persuasive because by today's GOP standards, is Antonin Scalia even conservative? I mean, he says that we all have a constitutional right to burn the flag. So by their standards, I'd imagine that if Texas became a state, they would give people the death penalty if they burned their flag. So, I mean, is he a libcuck now too? It's hard to tell based on how extreme the GOP is becoming. But what we see now is more and more national politicians, state politicians, the GOP in Texas is pushing for the end of the United States. This is them saying, we want to vote on this. And they know that legally they're not going to be able to secede, but this is their way of throwing red meat to the base saying, we represent you. So it's interesting to see if this trend continues. Legally, they won't be able to do this, but that's not going to stop this cause from gaining momentum if more national politicians adopt this stance. So we'll just have to watch and see where this goes. So by now, I hope that most of you saw this, but if you haven't watched the latest episode of Real Time with Bill Maher, um, it was one of those episodes where you have to watch it. It's it's a must-see. And I never say that about Real Time with Bill Maher because he's become insufferable over the years as he shifted to the right. In fact, I was a little bit apprehensive about talking about this because I'm currently in a copyright dispute with HBO because I used a Bill Maher clip in a segment from a couple of weeks ago. I mean, I'm legally allowed to share their clips under fair use if I follow the guidelines of fair use, which I do. Uh, but I thought that if I react to it this way, where, you know, I'm doing a screen share and I'm stopping it uh, all the time to talk about it, maybe it wouldn't be picked up by their copyright detectors. I'm not necessarily sure, but either way, Crystal Ball was on the panel this week, and this is the first time that Bill Maher has brought on a leftist in probably years, and it really goes to show you why he doesn't do this more frequently. This is because leftists bring facts, data, and they make the case, and it makes Bill Maher look like a hack, and he is a hack, but just watch when you see the way that they interact with each other. Crystal Ball, she came prepared, she knew the facts, and it shows, so let's watch refer this to the Justice Department. Why? Why isn't that moving into that realm? And if we don't, it will just happen again, no? 
I think that there is a fundamental lack of seriousness from the Democrats when it comes to solving the problems, not only that led us to January 6th, which I actually think is the deeper issue and the deeper question here. How did we get to a place where a good percentage of the country is convinced the election was stolen, where they would listen to this maniac, where they actually think that they're patriots storming the Capitol to restore democracy? How did we get there? And then you can see that they're not actually serious about how existential this threat is by the fact that they are propping up candidates who believe this nonsense. I mean, in Pennsylvania, this is what's actually really scary. The Democratic Party is redoing the Pied Piper strategy, and they're propping up MAGA extremist candidates actually running ads attacking rhinos for voting to impeach Trump. Democrats are paying for these ads because they want to run against the more extremist candidates. Uh, They did this in 2016. Hillary Clinton did this with Donald Trump, and it ended in catastrophic failure, and they're still doing it. So for Crystal Ball to make this point, I don't think anyone has heard this point who watches cable news exclusively. If you listen to YouTube shows, you've heard this, but this may be the first time they've been exposed to this fact about the Democratic Party, how fundamentally unserious they are. My question. I mean, yes, if a guy robs a liquor store, let's look into why he did that. But also, he needs to be arrested for robbing the liquor store. He's so smart. Let's look into why, what was in his mind, and like he was poor. You should understand the consequences of this, and I think that Donald Trump is a menace, and he may have committed crimes. But let's think about the consequences of prosecuting a former president who might run again. You know, Gerald Ford, I'm not saying the consequences. Yeah, because if if we don't prosecute him, then that's going to be worse than prosecuting him. That's not to say that it wouldn't be a shit show if Trump was prosecuted, but it's either you hold presidents to the same standard that we all are held to, or you let them get away with whatever, and they grow more and more tyrannical with each president that we elect. It just, this is, this is just ridiculous here. In 1975, you know, after what, 74, um, in the Watergate crisis, he did the right thing by pardoning Richard Nixon. You know, that was a long national nightmare and it ended. But, and I don't, and I, and I, I just think we Nixon have to be very did, careful about, about how we do this. This is cuck shit. Nixon did not try to undermine democracy itself. He, well, he, he was breaking he, the law. Yes, he broke, Trump broke I mean, the law. So first of all, I, I actually have That's no issue with Trump, Trump being prosecuted, and I have a lot of issue with elites being left unaccountable for the crimes that they commit, number one. Yep. Number two, that's not going to solve our problem. Do you think that Ron DeSantis is going to be way better than Donald Trump? Yes. He's I mean, not that's gonna, my he's issue. He's not going to be the enemy yes, of I democracy and in the same I, way I'd that like Trump to answer is. that. Yes, yeah. I do. Yeah. I don't know how you can say that. Because he's clearly modeled himself in the uh, footsteps of Donald Trump. Ron, I mean, Ron you DeSantis, see the well, way that these people shown, are yeah, I think that them being overconfident here is going to lead to the downfall of democracy. Trump absolutely has changed the game for GOP politics. But to say that other Republicans, after seeing Trump incite an insurrection and possibly get away with it they're not going to follow in his footsteps i mean ron DeSantis is copying victor orban victor orban in hungary consolidated power by weaponizing hate he did don't say gay laws in hungary and that's what ron DeSantis is doing even down to the strategy that victor orban uses after uh, passing these laws that forced teachers into the closet he said oh well i'm an ally of lgbtq plus people and ron DeSantis now just last week said oh well we won't tolerate hate in florida after he fomented hate for the past year against lgbtq plus people so for them to think that trump is the only fascist and if you defeat trump fascism is done 
that's incredibly naive. With that being said, Trump is the biggest, uh, most clear and present danger to democracy, but I think it's incredibly naive on Bill Maher's part to think that if we just defeat Donald Trump and prosecute him, that's it. The threat of fascism, the threat of, you know, a uh, threat to democracy that the GOP poses is over. Absolutely not. And that's what Crystal Ball is trying to get through to them. And also she's trying to make the case about how you can't just not be fascist. Democrats have to deliver for people so there is no popularity, no appeal to fascism. Because I And I've made this point before too on the show. If you are desperate, if you can't put food on the table, if you struggle to make a living wage, then you don't know why you're in this position. But if a demagogue comes along and says it's because of immigrants or queer people, you're more likely to believe that. That's not to say that if we had socialism that, you know, racism would go away because I'm not a class reductionist. I don't believe that. But that is to say that people would be less susceptible to radicalization if they weren't so fucking desperate. And this is what liberals like Bill Maher refuse to comprehend. Contempt for democratic pro he hasn't shown Good contempt steps. for democratic processes. He's, he's yes, not he has. certifiably insane. That too. That's a that great too. one to start <laughs> off with. He has his own police for election integrity. What are they talking about? Uh, you know what Ron DeSantis won't be doing? He won't be uh, poop tweeting every day. He won't be like having feuds with Ben. As if mean tweets were the core problem with Donald Trump. Moving on to the second clip, also courtesy of Case Study QB. Um, I believe this is the part that went the most viral that I wanted to share. Let's talk a little politics because I see uh, Joe Biden Oh, boy. His, uh, I, I mean, every midterm, the party out of power usually gets creamed. Um, I mean, the party in power. And But this year, I mean, Biden's approval rating with 18 to 34 is 22 percent. Among Hispanics, this is part of the base, 24 percent. But yet a couple of weeks ago, Bill Maher was shitting on, on the idea of canceling student debt. Wow, he's losing young people, but yet he should do nothing to win young people over. I just like I feel like they want to have it both ways. They want to shit on young people and do nothing to reach out to young people, but also complain when young people don't deliver for Democrats. It's truly a bizarre mentality, but this is the typical liberal elite mentality. Forty nine percent among African-Americans. That's the base base. And that's what got him the job. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, he's calling himself Hunter's dad now. No, uh, I'm just. <laughs> Um, but there's whispers now that are getting louder and louder that he needs to say, I'm not running again. Okay, I did my job. I removed the mm -hmm. queen from the board, or ho however chess works, but... <laughs> <sighs> so Trump Mike is kind of a drag queen. Kind of <laughs> He's a very camp. What a unison. He's a real... Yeah. <laughs> You're right on that. He's totally camp. He's totally camp. It's very camp. With the hair. Oh, my and God. And spitting all that ridiculous, like, outrageous a, comments all the time. A I just don't find this funny at all. It's very stupid. Very, very stupid comedy. I don't even think this is boomer humor. My older audience members will have to tell me if they think that their friends would find this funny because this is genuinely stupid. Bouffant yeah. like a diner waitress? He's basically the first gay president. We should be honest about it. Okay. I mean, yeah. So glad you no. said it because I've been thinking it. We've all been thinking it. Uh, so here's my question about Joe Biden for you two. Has he pandered to the far left, A, too much, 
B, <laughs> too little, not at all. Because uh, AOC would say not at all. Well, if you other look people would say he panders way too much to the far. If you look at the okay, this is brain rot. To think this, to say this, you have brain rot if you think this. Now, thankfully, there is for the first time in years again a leftist on the panel to correct him, and this is where Crystal Ball claps them cheeks trajectory of his presidency. At the beginning of his presidency, he did some of the things that myself as a person on the left would like him to see. He passes the COVID relief bill and lo and behold, he had very high approval ratings. You're not always on the left. Then I am on the left. Uh, I'm, the I'm a Bernie the, Sanders leftist. There's the populist not, economic left. So, then there's the woke left. These okay, are two okay. separate. In any case, let's. What is that? What is what does that even mean? There's the populist economic left and then there's the woke left. I don't even know what that word means. The term woke is used so much that it has no meaning effectively at this point. So I don't even know what that means. Why would you even disaggregate the woke left from the economic left? About what he's actually done. So in the beginning of the administration, he passes that very high approval rating, doing extraordinarily well. And she's right when here. When he puts Absolutely out the left agenda in the Build Back Better, and then it fails, and he stops delivering well, for the American people, explain, that's when he falls off. What do you mean off. by the left agenda in the Build Back Better? Well, there's Just universal pre-K. It's okay. not everything that I would want. Right. No Medicare for all. There's no Green New Deal. But you had universal pre-K. You had affordable child care. You had elder care. You had an expansion of Medicare. You had things that would have done. And to be clear... She has to put meat on it and explain these policies because Bill Maher probably doesn't know what was in Build Back Better because I doubt he followed it. ...for the American people. That falls apart, partly because of Manchin, Cinema, Parliamentary, all of that. That falls apart. And since now, the American people are feeling incredible pain with inflation and gas prices and unable to put food on the table and put gas in the car, and he's basically seeded the ground and said, eh, there's not much I can do. I just hope the Fed gets this under control. Yeah, the approval ratings have fallen off a cliff. That's nothing to do with the left. I wish the left had more yep. power. In fact, I think the left is the only part of the political spectrum that has offered anything to deal with inflation, gas prices in the current yeah, economic I mean, I situation think. that doesn't just involve, hey, let's trigger a recession and kill people's wages. Well, I mean, part of this inflationary problem is because we put too much money into the economy. There's way too much government spending, and that's why we have inflation. So that's a large part of that. I mean, most of the inflation is from corporations taking advantage of the headlines. When the news reports that inflation is going to become a thing, corporations then increase prices to increase profits because people are expecting it like it's part of a momentum effect as well It's a self-fulfilling prophecy in many ways but that's not the only explanation for it but the difference is that they will make it seem as if that is the only explanation you know when you put money in people's hands well that's the problem so the best thing that you can do is i guess um not put money in people's hands do more austerity perhaps like i don't want to speak for him but crystal ball is actually uh going to explain what's going on here an explanation that I don't know if they've ever heard. Um, it's just basic is, economics. And that is secondly, not basic economics. We had this thing called a pandemic. We had a supply chain crisis. Okay. And oh, yeah, by the way, well, there's well, a war. Well, it's role. It's played so a role. So to act like the only reason okay. we have and, problems is because people got a little bit of money in their whoa, bank whoa, whoa, account whoa. is just not honest. And you, a little bit of money, Boom. they got more than we spent in World War II. So you but, act, don't act like hold the on, hold on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. You said don't act. Really quick here. So he's getting really smug, really arrogant because he doesn't like when people get money. But this is when Crystal Ball smacks him the fuck down and he hasn't been put in his place like this in a very long time 
act like we had to react to the pandemic exactly the way we did. We hacked it. We, we had to spend six okay, trillion but how about the on the trillions flu. compared to that other the countries? Federal Reserve shot at Wall Street. For some reason, people don't what? get upset about that. How much that you say? fueled the trillions of dollars the Federal Reserve shot at Wall Street to stop the stock market and the bond market. No one well, gets upset about that, uh, even though well, that was a massive factor in inflation. I don't know what you're talking about. What do you mean shot at Wall Street? Well, when they, are we talking about? That we're talking about buying assets, buying stocks, buying bonds, buying treasury bills when? so that they expand the balance this? sheet. This is during the crisis, Bill. the coronavirus crisis, when the stock market crashed. That is what the Fed did. They went into action. They shot but trillions the of dollars. But the stock market didn't crash no. during COVID. Now it's they, crashing. It did it's crash. crashing now. It crashed, and the Fed came in and backstopped Bill. it. That's what happened. What, it crashed, so and we never heard I'm about saying. it? No, it crashed. Go back and look at it. I think when, it this is genuinely embarrassing. This man has a television show, and he doesn't follow basic fucking news. It is humiliating cliff when? the treasury bond market stopped functioning and the fed took extraordinary action it's never taken in history i've seen this clip so many times and it's still mind-blowing to me at this point somehow nobody gets upset about the rich people who got tons of money and tons of support oh, yeah. way more than working class people did sure but oh my god people were able to feed their kids and they had a little bit of money in their bank accounts it was the worst thing in the world no. that is one small part of the inflation story and is by mm -hmm. the way not the only thing that we can deal with to get out of this mess well gas so prices is it a small part Jimmy, gas, price, it... gas prices we can largely attribute to an administration that's been waging war on the fossil fuel industry that's ridiculous and now drilled demand... more than everybody i mean that's a US, point. u.s production no, no, no. okay no, a talking point is saying that Biden waged the war on the fossil fuel industry. He's, he's, I swear to God, like, this is not a very substantive critique, and I don't have to be as substantive because I feel like Crystal Ball really comes with the facts, but these people have worms in their fucking brains. They just, they consume nothing but corporate media, corporate propaganda, and, and every single thing that they say is at the behest of these, of these fucking uh, companies. Oh, well, you know, this administration waged a war on the fossil fuel industry. They're making record fucking profits. They're doing stock buybacks. Does that seem like, you know, an industry that's fucking hurting you dipshit? God damn. U.S. production is up. Well, it will be yep. at record levels next year. Okay, well, the fossil precisely. fuel companies themselves are flush with cash, but will not invest in new drilling because they would rather give it oh, to their okay. shareholders. Okay, right, That's wait. the truth of what's well, happening. Well, here's the, here's the truth. I mean, I just read it today. And if you notice, he had no response. The other guests, no response. Because what she's saying is undeniably true. It is emp empirically correct. So they can have these talking points and accuse her of having talking points. Oh, that's a talking point. But she's speaking facts. Look it up. Google it. So, you know, this is why they don't want to bring lefties on because they can't just say things that is, you know, a talking point that they hear on MSNBC or Fox News. They actually have to back up what they're saying. And if they say something incorrect, a lefty will say, actually, this is the truth. Here's the facts. Here's the data. And they don't like that. They like to live in their bubble. And, you know, it gets uncomfortable when he ha he's faced with actual arguments that he hasn't heard. In 2020, Biden said no more drilling on federal lands. No more. Uh, no look, Keystone I'm, Pipeline. Yeah. No. Oh, okay, is, and I'm not saying that. And, and also and, and antagonizing I, Saudi Arabia. Oh, now he's going on. back to Saudi Arabia uh, hat in what, hand. Wait, wait, wait. wait but, let, let us finish. Just, uh, how is he antagonizing Saudi Arabia? 
because he wouldn't he he signed an executive order saying I'm not going to sell them weapons for you know offensive purposes but then he's like oh, okay well I'm still going to sell them weapons but just because these are defensive as they do a genocide in Yemen I mean, every single thing that they say, it oozes disingenuity. And I feel like, you know, if you're a normie and you consume this, there's got to be at least some instinct in you. Like, your bullshit detector has got to be going off. All right. saying. All right. And then you can shit up. Well, and, and, <laughs> antagonizing the Saudis well, with, his, with his Iran well, deal yes. policy, and now he's going back to them hat in hand. To get he hasn't joined the Iran deal again. Uh, I mean, uh, this is just, it's so fundamentally untrue antagonizing them with the iran deal policy the iran deal if biden wanted to get back into the iran deal don't you think he would have been back into it there's so much pushback against the iran deal which was a peace deal by the way to increase their production but i bet you're in so favor of the russian oil ban uh because yeah the saudis are well, great russia humanitarians is, russia is raping a country the, right now yeah, and the saudi saudis Arabia, are amazing humanitarians no i didn't I mean, say that i didn't say that there are allies there are allies so listen okay. but hold but well instead of Let's just talk about why these things really yeah. happen. But what about what Saudi is doing to Yemen? I mean, there's no consistency. And that's that's great that Crystal pointed that out. Be consistent. They're not consistent. They're fundamentally inconsistent. It's just whatever benefits corporate America. And I don't know if like this is a literal shill for like some corporate fucking industry. I have no idea. But it's a distinction without a difference because everything that he's saying, he's just parroting from mainstream media. Who does get advertising dollars from the fossil fuel industry, health insurance companies? So, you know, with time, what people in mainstream media, what the pundits in mainstream media say, it just reflects what their advertisers want because they don't want to scare away those advertising dollars. So they just parrot what the industry wants. And, and you know, a lot of this is subconscious. The industry will disseminate these talking points and they probably don't even know that they're being unwitting idiots for these uh these industries but at the same time you know somehow these talking points got into their brains um and i don't know if management is directly saying you have to say this talking point but either way it doesn't matter like it's it's untrue and you see that it's really crystal clear when you have a progressive like crystal ball here because people think that they can we look i, I wish we were all off fossil fuels forever sure but the, the truth is that when people get off fossil fuels before they have a replacement, they wind up going back to even worse fossil fuels. Germany said, we don't want nuclear power yep. anymore, yep. which That's is true. the cleanest. Yep. That's true. And what did they have to go back to? Coal. And, and, then, and basically the same thing happened here. We said, Saudi Arabia, go fuck yourself. You killed a journalist. And now Biden is going over there hat in hand begging them for oil because people want yeah, their gas. Which is pathetic. And by the yep. way, the only issue with oil is not just supply and demand, because as I was just saying, we actually have a fairly significant amount of supply. It isn't at, you know, extraordinarily low levels. If you look at the recent past, we don't have an extraordinary amount of demand. We're not even back to pre-pandemic levels. You do have a massive amount of Wall Street speculation that is also causing an increase in gas prices. Yeah. So again, this is what I'm saying that the gouging. only people who are talking about and that, some people and there's are, a lot of price gouging. There's a lot of gouging. So you asked whether- always depend on them to gouge. You asked whether Biden is not pandering to the left enough for too much or whatever. This the left are the only ones talking about those issues, about the fact that you have monopolies that have jacked up prices far above what they need to because they can, because they can use the excuse of inflation. And mm -hmm. CEOs are bragging on earnings calls I mean, about how they've lifted prices okay. and gouged consumers, right. and we're not doing anything head. about it.
oh god so look that was great because they couldn't do anything but nod their head in disagreement and you know nod disapprovingly she has facts you have fuck all my dude so look if you want to see um basically her full panel appearance if you go to case study qb on twitter um he's uploaded most of it so definitely be sure to uh check it out he does a great service for leftists and he gets all of the best clips um so you don't have to subscribe to hbo to watch this uh while we're talking about crystal ball uh, i will plug my appearance on uh crystal kyle and friends from last week i went on the show and um yeah i think it was a great appearance i'm really thankful that they brought me on but yeah overall phenomenal appearance this is why we need more leftists on mainstream media because their viewers for the first time hear arguments that they haven't heard but that's also simultaneously why these pundits like bill maher don't invite lefties on that frequently it's because these arguments contradict what they're saying and even if you know they don't necessarily have a stake in these companies for example like bill maher he isn't like you know he's not making some pro corporate argument because he wants to get rich off of them but it's embarrassing to have someone contradict everything that you're saying he probably doesn't even realize that he's parroting what he hears off of msnbc and fox news you know but either way he is doing it and he you know he sounds foolish and he doesn't want to sound foolish which is why he probably won't bring on crystal ball ever again uh because you know she she knows her shit. so yeah that's what i'll say about this i won't play anymore because i'm already kind of pushing it but Go watch the whole thing. It was just incredible. Great job to Crystal Ball. This is what we need to see. Um, we need more lefties to get on mainstream media and push back in this way because I think that is the key to winning people over. Well, the Supreme Court handed down multiple new decisions today, all of them predictably atrocious, but arguably the most consequential one is the decision of Carson v. Macon. This is a 6-3 ruling where the justices essentially decided that they are going to trample on the U.S. Constitution by gutting the separation of church and state by requiring states to fund religious schools in particular circumstances. As NPR's Nina Totenberg explains, by a 6-3 vote along ideological lines, the court opened the door further for those seeking taxpayer funding for religious schools. In its clearest statement to date, the court said that if a state uses taxpayer money to pay for students attending non-religious private schools, it must, keyword must, also use taxpayer funds to pay for attendance at religious schools. For all practical purposes, the decision thus invalidates provisions in 37 state constitutions that ban the direct or indirect use of taxpayer money in religious schools. The court's ruling came in a case from Maine, a state so rural that half of its school districts have no public high school. The state deals with that problem by contracting with nearby high schools and other districts to take those students. The state pays the average cost of tuition a bit over $11,000. In addition, it pays the same amount for nearly all of the 4,800 students who attend 11 private non-sectarian academies, many of them located on the green at the center of the towns where they are located. What the state does not do is pay the tuition for students attending private religious schools. But now the Supreme Court has ruled that Maine's system of excluding tuition for students attending religious schools is unconstitutional. The court said that the First Amendment provision guaranteeing the free exercise of religion requires neutrality toward religion, and Maine's system of paying only for tuition at non-religious schools demonstrates not neutrality, but hostility towards religion. So understand how the court is twisting itself into a pretzel 
to get around this brazen violation of the Constitution. They're saying if you're going to give money to these secular schools, you must give money to religious schools because that is how you establish neutrality. Excuse me? That logic is so twisted. Now, before this was essentially left up to the states, if a state wanted to fund these religious schools with taxpayer money, they could do that. But now the court is saying, well, if you fund secular schools, you must also fund religious schools because it's only fair. So taxpayer money is going to go to schools that are religious, that explicitly discriminate on the basis of religion, on the basis of gender identity, sexual orientation. In fact, look at one of the schools involved here. The court is now saying you must fund these types of schools if you're going to fund secular schools. So an article published in Time back in January explains how Bangor Christian School, one of the schools involved in this case, they explicitly discriminate against LGBTQ plus teachers and students. So first of all, they refuse to hire anyone who's gay or trans, and they also literally expel students if they come out of the closet. Now, this article tells the story of one student named Shamlion, who was non-binary and bisexual, but knowing the school's policy, they stayed in the closet. However, one of their classmates decided to out them to school administrators back in 2019, which then led to Shamlion being called into the principal's office, reprimanded, threatened with expulsion, and thankfully, the principal didn't expel them since they were so close to graduating, but they did require counseling counseling specifically to address their sexuality, which Shamlion interpreted as gay conversion therapy because it's essentially gay conversion therapy. Now the Supreme Court is saying if you're going to fund secular schools for students in rural areas, you must fund schools like this that openly discriminate against queer teachers, queer students, and do gay conversion therapy, which has been banned in multiple states because it's an abusive practice. States must fund this. Now, it's not like they have the option to if they want to. You must use taxpayer dollars to fund these openly prejudiced schools. It is truly absurd. Now, I want to get to Sotomayor's dissent because uh, she breaks down why this is truly preposterous and obviously unconstitutional. ACLU attorney for queer rights Josh Block tweeted out arguably the most important part of Sotomayor's dissent, which reads, what a difference five years makes. In 2017, I feared that the court was leading us to a place where separation of church and state is a constitutional slogan, not a constitutional commitment. Today, the court leads us to a place where separation of church and state becomes a constitutional violation. If a state cannot offer subsidies to its citizens without being required to fund religious exercise, any state that values its historic anti-establishment interests more than this court does will have to curtail the support it offers to its citizens. With growing concern for where this court will lead us next, I respectfully dissent. And she's right to be concerned. We should all be concerned. Because despite what the Constitution says, the Supreme Court is trying to lay the groundwork legally speaking and constitutionally speaking for Christian nationalism. What's that? The states can't establish a religion? Well, now they're going to be forced to use taxpayer dollars to fund these schools that are explicitly religious and discriminate against LGBTQ plus people, discriminate on the basis of religion, violating federal statutes that other businesses have to comply with, but now the state has to fund this. It's truly 
ridiculous. We're going down a very dark and dangerous path. But despite what the Constitution says, it doesn't matter because this court will twist themselves into a pretzel to find some way to justify their theocratic view of America. And these conservatives on the Supreme Court, these far right Supreme Court uh, justices who claim that they, you know, rule with this judicial philosophy that they try to interpret what the founders wanted. Well, do you think that this is what the founders wanted? Most of the founders were not religious. Many of them were very anti-religious. Some of them were deists. But do you think this is what they wanted? Of course not. So this just confirms what we've all suspected. They don't have real judicial philosophies. They just make shit up as they go along. They rule in a reactionary way and then they apply some bullshit judicial philosophy to their reactionary decision. It's truly ridiculous. And thinking years ahead, 2023, 2024, all of the decisions that this far right court is going to hand down that will unravel our constitutional rights, civil rights, civil liberties. This is only the beginning. This is year one with the far right Supreme Court. But this far right Supreme Court will remain in power presumably for decades. So they're going to change this country fundamentally from top to bottom in a profound way. And there's nothing that we can do. There's no discussion realistically of court packing. There's no conversations about actually trying to impeach Clarence Thomas, who is an insurrectionist and married to somebody who tried to steal democracy. We're just going to live with this? Absolutely not. There should be protests every single day because this cannot be tolerated. They're going to destroy America by bastardizing the Constitution. And I have my criticisms of the Constitution. I don't think it's a perfect document, but what's good, they're trying to gut it. It's just truly remarkable to think about the plethora of ways they're going to fuck this country. And um, if people don't wake up and take to the streets and start protesting, then I don't know that we're going to have many constitutional protections left by the time this far-right Supreme Court is done with it. Immediately, I saw that the White House on my Bluetooth was calling, and I took the call and was asked by the, I would presume, the operator at the White House if I would hold for the president, which I did, and he... Mr. Giuliani came on first, and niceties, then Mr. Trump, President Trump, then President Trump came on, and we initiated a conversation. And during that conversation, uh, did um, you ask Mr. Giuliani for proof of these allegations of fraud that he was making? On multiple occasions, yes. Uh, and when you asked him uh, for evidence of this fraud, what did he say? He said that they did have proof, and I asked him, do you have names? For example, we have 200,000 illegal immigrants, some large number, uh, five or 6,000 dead people, etc. And I said, do you have their names? Yes. Will you give them to me? Yes. The president interrupted and said, give the man what he needs, Rudy. He said, I, I will. And that happened on at least two occasions that interchange in the conversation. So Mr. Giuliani was claiming in the call that there were hundreds of thousands of undocumented people and thousands of dead people who had uh, purportedly voted in the election? Yes. Uh, and you asked him for evidence of that? I did. Uh, and did he ever receive, did you ever receive from him that evidence uh, either during the call, after the call, or to this day? 
Never. That was a snippet from today's January 6th Select Committee public hearing, and we just heard from Rusty Bowers, who is a Republican. In fact, he endorsed Donald Trump in 2020, and he is the Republican Speaker of the Arizona House. And what he just described was Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani calling him, telling him that the election was fraudulent, providing him with no evidence. Now, again, I think it's important to emphasize that this man is no liberal, but he's saying they're telling me that there's fraud and they're providing me with zero evidence. Now, this is important because what he's going to say next during his testimony is truly devastating for Donald Trump. And even though there's more hearings that will take place, I'm to the point where if they don't prosecute Donald Trump with all of the evidence that we have, there's no hope for democracy. So what you're going to see now is Rusty Bowers testify under oath about how Trump pressured him to literally commit election fraud, throw out the results and appoint pro-Trump electors so they can quite literally steal the election away from Joe Biden in the state of Arizona. Watch. What was the ask during this call? Uh, he was making these allegations of fraud, but he had something or a couple things uh, that they wanted you to do. What were those? The ones I remember were first the that we would hold, that I would allow an official committee at, at the Capitol so that they could hear this evidence and that we could take action thereafter. Um, and I refused. I said, up to that time, the, the circus, I called it a circus, had been brewing with uh, lots of demonstrations, both at the counting center, at the Capitol, and other places. And I didn't want to have that in the House. I, I did not feel that the evidence, granted in its absence, merited a hearing, and I didn't want to be used as a pawn uh, if there was some other need that the, uh, that the committee hearing would fulfill. Um, so that was the first ask, that we ha hold an official committee hearing. And what was his second ask? I, I said, to what end? To what end the hearing? He said, well, we have heard by an official high up in the Republican uh, legislature that there is a legal theory or a legal ability in Arizona that you can remove the, um, the electors of President Biden and replace them. And we would, we would like to have the legitimate opportunity through the committee to come to that end and, and remove that. And I said, that's, that's, something I've, that's totally new to me. I've never heard of any such thing. And he pressed that point, and I said, look, you are asking me to do something that is counter to my oath when I swore to the Constitution to uphold it, and I also swore to the Constitution and the laws of the state of Arizona, and this is totally foreign as a, an idea or a theory to me, and I would never do anything of such magnitude without deep consultation with qualified attorneys. And I said, I've got some good attorneys and I'm going to give you their names. Uh, but you're asking me to do something against my oath and I will not break my oath. Trump pressured this individual to remove the Biden electors that their state had chosen and install pro-Trump electors, literally subvert the will of people in Arizona. That is 
insane. And we know that Trump did this, but to hear a Republican official testify under oath about how extensive this pressure campaign was should horrify everyone because Trump at this point in time can still legally run for president again after he just tried to steal an election, kill democracy effectively in the United States. Now, again, this is no liberal. Rusty Bowers endorsed Trump in 2020. He wanted Trump to win in 2020. But what he wouldn't do is steal an election by committing election fraud at the behest of Donald Trump. Now, he referenced a specific legal theory, which we've been hearing much more about. But the legal theory that he's referring to is independent state legislature theory. Now, this is a bogus legal theory that effectively would lead to authoritarianism in the United States where state legislatures just choose who they want to be the president of the United States. As Yvette Borgia of Balls and Strikes explains, the independent state legislature theory is derived from Articles 1 and 2 of the Constitution, which together state that federal congressional elections and the process of selecting presidential electors shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. Advocates interpret the word legislature literally and exclusively to mean a state's lawmaking representative body. Some claim that this gives state legislatures sweeping power to regulate federal elections, from voting rights to redistricting, without input from other branches of state government. In theory, legislatures could even enact rules that run afoul of a state's own constitution, a voter-passed initiative, or a governor's veto. By extension, the theory prohibits state election administration officials from doing anything that legislatures do not specifically authorize. And because a state legislature's power over elections is derived from the federal constitution, federal courts, not state courts, are supposedly the proper interpreters of whether election officials are complying with the law. So the Trump administration was pushing this bogus theory that's essentially a blank check for state legislatures to do what they want with regard to elections, to hell with the will of the people, who cares how they voted? If you don't like the way that the election turned out in your state, just appoint electors of your choice, override the will of the people. Like this theory, to even call it a theory is a misnomer, but this is literally a pathway to authoritarianism where we don't even need to have elections. We just have state legislators elect who they want to or choose who they want to unilaterally. It's truly insane. But yet this is the theory that Trump's team used. And mind you, while Trump was exerting pressure on people like Rusty Bowers, Ginny Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, also emailed him and pressured him to use this bogus legal theory to appoint pro-Trump electors in order to literally override Arizona's election results. And here's why now there's so much momentum for this particular legal theory, because of the reliance on federal courts, right? So there are Republicans who are trying to petition the Supreme Court to rule on the validity of independent state legislature theory. And the horrifying thing about this is it's not just being laughed out of the room. You have four Supreme Court justices, Alito, Thomas, whose wife tried to pressure Rusty Bowers to use this theory to override the will of voters. Um, on top of that, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, four members of the Supreme Court who say, we want to hear a case on ISLT. We want to take this up. Now, would they say that it's legitimate? Don't know, but the fact that at least one of those Supreme Court justices has a wife who is pressuring individuals at the state level to use this theory to override the will of voters tells me that mm, I think that at least one vote would go in the direction 
of authoritarianism. And that's what this is. This theory is nothing more than authoritarianism. It would mean the end of democracy as we know it, at least when it comes to choosing presidents. It's truly preposterous. Now, Trump knew that Rusty's testimony would be devastating. So what did he do? Well, he attacked him as a rhino and claimed that Bowers told him that the election was rigged. And again, I want to remind you that Bowers endorsed Trump in 2020. But now, because he's testifying under oath, Trump is calling him a rhino. And under oath, which is something that Trump has not done, Rusty Bowers is saying, actually, no. Yes, Trump and I had a conversation, but I did not tell him that the election was rigged. I never said that. So who do you believe? The compulsive liar or the Republican who liked Trump, wanted him to win, but just wouldn't break the law, violate the Constitution, and override the will of people in his state? Now, Giuliani and Trump... They pressured a lot of people across the country to do what they wanted Rusty Bowers to do. But Rusty Bowers in this next clip, it's really important because he actually is principled and he explains how this is something that he could not condone, could not do because overriding the will of the people in his state is antithetical to democracy. And even if he liked Donald Trump and wanted Trump to win, this was just too far. First of all, when the people, and in Arizona, I believe it was some 40 plus years earlier, the legislature had established the manner of electing our officials or the electors for the presidential race. Once it was given to the people, as in Bush v. Gore, illustrated by the Supreme Court, it becomes a fundamental right of the people. So as far as I was concerned, for someone to ask me in the, I would call it a paucity, there was no, no evidence being presented of any strength. Evidence can be hearsay evidence, it's still evidence, but it's still hearsay. But strong judicial quality evidence, anything that would say to me, you have a doubt, deny your oath. I will not do that. And on more than On more than one occasion throughout all this, that has been brought up, and it is a tenet of my faith that the Constitution is divinely inspired of my most basic foundational beliefs. And so for me to do that because somebody just asked me to? is foreign to my very being. I, I, I will not do it. Look, I probably disagree with Rusty Bowers on 99.9% .9 of policy issues, but what he said there, I respect. And the reason why what he said is so important is because we can't go forward as a country, literally, if we don't believe and all agree on the foundational principle of democracy, choosing who's going to be the leaders of our country. And we're already losing our democracy. Democracy as it is in the United States is arguably non-existent, but at least having the capability to exert the little power that we have to influence elections, to choose leaders. If we can't agree on that, then literally our country cannot go forward. So we all have to put aside our policy differences and at least come to this very basic agreement that, hey, Maybe we should preserve what's left of our democracy and at least let the people choose the presidents. They're members of Congress, they're senators. But you have Republicans who are so extreme, 
that they're fighting against that very basic principle of democracy, pushing this bogus legal, quote, theory to literally crush democracy in the United States. And so this is devastating testimony to Donald Trump because what he was pressuring Bowers to do was unconstitutional, it was illegal, and it was antithetical to democracy. So we don't necessarily know the outcome of these hearings. It needs to end in a recommendation for prosecution, but if Merrick Garland does not prosecute Trump after having all of this evidence, then, I mean, even if Trump is defeated in 2024, it's just a matter of time before a different Republican comes along and capitalizes on this authoritarian momentum that is building within the Republican Party, and then democracy as we know it will be gone. Last Friday, we learned that British Home Secretary Priti Patel approved the extradition of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to the United States, where he'll be prosecuted under the Espionage Act for doing the crime of journalism. Yeah. Now, there are still avenues that he can take to appeal this within the UK. He can also appeal to the European Court of Human Rights, although I'm not necessarily optimistic about his chances there. But what's really important, the next step, I believe, aside from the legal fight, is to exert pressure on the Biden administration because he can unilaterally choose to drop this case against Julian Assange. And if this does not happen, if he does choose to prosecute Julian Assange under the Espionage Act and he's successful, the effect that this will have on the future of journalism going forward is truly horrifying, to say the least. Now, there hasn't been much pressure on the Biden administration, despite how important this case is. However, one individual, one world leader is brave enough to stand up to Biden and exert pressure on him to drop the case. And that is Mexico President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who said on Tuesday he will ask U.S. President Joe Biden to address the case of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, saying Mexico would open its doors to him if he were released. British Home Secretary Priti Patel on Friday approved the WikiLeaks founder's extradition to the United States to face criminal charges. I'm going to ask President Biden to address this issue. Humanism must prevail, Lopez Obrador said at a regular news conference. Mexico could open its doors to Assange if he were released, he added. The Mexican president is set to meet his U.S. counterpart in July after skipping the recent U.S.-hosted summit of the Americas in Los Angeles to protest the White House's exclusion of the governments of Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua from the event. He is the best journalist of our time in the world and has been very unfairly treated worse than a criminal. This is an embarrassment to the world, Lopez Obrador said. And for AMLO to say that he's been treated worse than criminals is actually true, and we'll get to that in a moment here. Um, but basically, the reason why this has to be the next step, and even if the chances are slim, it's the most important, best chance that Assange has, is because Biden, he is doing what the Trump administration started, right? Obama chose to not pursue criminal charges against Assange, but then Trump was elected and then decide, uh, decided to take up this case against Assange. So Biden is continuing with Trump's legacy. So I don't necessarily think that you can make a compelling case to Joe Biden to drop the charges because we fear for what this means for the First Amendment and journalism going forward. But what we can do is shame him into doing the right thing. And unfortunately, really, journalists who have his ear are the ones who have to make the case. I mean, this is this is going to impact them as well. So the fact that there isn't more pressure, more noise about this is truly startling. But at least we have a world leader in AMLO who's saying, listen, drop the charges. We'll take them in 
over here in Mexico. This is really important to have somebody care this much about democracy on the world stage. It seems like this is really uncommon, but I'm thankful that, you know, AMLO is making this case. Now, Kevin Gostola was interviewed by uh, Philip DeFranco yesterday, and he explains not only why this is so unprecedented, but the lengths that the U.S. went to to intimidate Julian Assange. We've seen in uh, continents like Africa, uh, South America, and the Middle East, uh, countries that are much, much, much less uh, free and open that, that they do this to journalists, but it's always held up and celebrated that in the West, in, in Western democracies, in, in like UK and the United States, that we won't do this to the press. And they had always set a boundary that uh, this law, the Espionage Act from 1917, which is over 100 years old, that uh, they would only use this to target people who leaked information to the press who were violating their oath, uh, allegedly, or the, the agreement that they had signed when they got a security clearance. Throughout history, they had threatened press groups or they had threatened media organizations. They had threatened journalists with prosecution. Uh, they had stopped uh, and, and never gone beyond threatening um, a, a number of journalists and organizations with prosecution. But now, with this case... They have claimed the authority to decide who is and is not a journalist. Former CIA director Mike Pompeo um, and another former CIA official were summoned to give testimony and share what they know. Because there was a source for this Yahoo News report that got a lot of attention because the headline was in bold and it said uh, that it, it accused uh, Mike Pompeo and the CIA of being involved in developing secret war plans uh, to kidnap or poison or even consider killing Julian Assange outright while he was in the embassy. We get to 2017, 2018, and this company called Undercover Global, it's a private security company run by a man named David Morales. He uh, develops this arrangement with which we think uh, goes all the way to the CIA, but there is still some things to be proven before we state that definitively, but we know the CIA had access to audio and video recordings from inside the embassy, and they're involved in going after his attorneys, trying to identify Julian Assange's, uh, who, who we know now are his children. He has Stella and his family uh, interested in all his visitors, collecting uh, and putting together files on people. They were going after doctors, collect his medical notes. But one of the things they did that was the most outrageous towards uh, the baby that was coming in, who they suspected was Julian Assange's uh, son. Uh, they tried to steal a, a diaper from his, uh, it, it, I, his son to do a DNA test to try to confirm whether it was his or not. The fact that they had cameras, they were bugging all parts of the embassy. They bugged the women's bathroom where attorneys were actually already going into to meet because they believe that other parts of the Ecuador embassy were being snooped on. And so this is all known because of documents that uh, are in the possession of his lawyers. Um, he's got uh, one lawyer named Eator Martinez who represents him in Spain. Uh, and they have all these uh, documents, files they have. There, there's whistleblowers that came forward and passed on information. There's two of them. They're unnamed. We don't know who they are. 
Uh, they're in fear for their safety, that they could be retaliated against. And unfortunately, I don't think many people know about all of these details. It seems conspiratorial. It seems as if this is something out of some sort of a movie, but this is real life. There's evidence, there's leaks showing what the U.S. has been doing. So imagine, uh, like put aside Assange for a second, right? Because regardless of how you feel about Assange, imagine he's prosecuted successfully under the Espionage Act. Well, he published documents that exposed the U.S. government's war crimes. So imagine going forward, a journalist gets these leaks. Well, they might not want to publish them for fear of retribution from the U.S. government. I mean, prosecuting a publisher, this is truly a new low. This is a direct attack on the press itself, who's supposed to keep governments in check. Now, for more context, The Guardian explains the use of the Espionage Act to prosecute him should be seen for what it is, an attack on the freedom of the press, as the Knight First Amendment Institute's Carrie DeSell wrote in 2019 when the charge sheet was published, soliciting, obtaining, and then publishing classified information is what good national security and investigative journalists do every day. Ms. Patel could have turned down the American request. Britain should be wary of extraditing a suspect to a country with such a political justice department. Her predecessor Assessor Theresa May halted the extradition proceedings of Gary McKinnon, who hacked the U.S. Department of Defense. The U.K. could have decided that Mr. Assange faces an unacceptably high risk of prolonged solitary confinement in a U.S. maximum security prison. Instead, Ms. Patel has dealt a blow to press freedom and against the public, who have a right to know what their governments are doing in their name. It's not over. Mr. Assange will appeal. The charges against him should never have been brought. As Mr. Assange published classified documents and he did not leak them, Barack Obama's administration was reluctant to bring charges. His legal officers correctly understood that this would threaten public interest journalism. It was Donald Trump's team which considered the press an enemy of the people that took the step. It is not too late for the U.S. to drop the charges. On World Press Freedom Day this year, the U.S. President Joe Biden said the work of free and independent media matters now more than ever. Giving Mr. Assange his freedom back would give meaning to those words. And that is exactly right. So if journalists have the opportunity to ask Biden a question and they do not ask him about his hypocrisy here. I mean, it's journalistic malpractice, but they're only shooting themselves in the foot because this affects every single journalist in the country and not just journalists. This affects Americans because we have a right to know what our government is doing as the article laid out. I think we had a right to know that our government was committing war crimes and lying about the death toll in these countries that we were terrorizing. These are the leaks that Chelsea Manning brought to Julian Assange after other outlets would not publish them. And Julian Assange may now be prosecuted because he chose to share something that was definitely within the public's interest. So Biden, if he wants to actually take us in a different direction, as he said he did when he was first elected, and undo Trump's legacy, undo the attacks on freedom of the press, you're not serious if you continue with this prosecution, if you continue with this case. So I'm not necessarily sure what's going to happen, but I hope that Biden at least listens to the case that AMLO makes when they meet in July. And I hope that he drops these charges because this is just too important. I don't care what you feel about Julian Assange, but a lot of folks need to understand this is bigger than Julian Assange. This is about press freedom and democracy going forward. And as 
quickly as we are losing our democracy to the far right. We cannot allow liberal Democratic Party administrations to be complicit in the fall of our democracy and be complicit in the fall of press freedom. It's totally unacceptable. And this is something that every single American has got to pay attention to and care about. How much did you know about what your chief of staff was doing with the alternate slates of electors? No, you're not. I can see your phone. I can see your screen. Does your chief of staff still work for you, Senator? That was Republican Senator Ron Johnson presumably pretending to talk on the phone in order to avoid answering questions from reporters. And man, was that awkward. To his defense, your phone screen does go dark if you're talking on the phone, at least I believe if you're using iPhone, but you can tell that he was faking it because, you know, if you have a conversation, you're going to end the conversation and say, okay, let me call you back. Hang on a second. Um, I'm trying to listen. He just casually pulled the phone away and then pretended to hang it up. Very, very cringeworthy and bizarre behavior. But, you know, you only engage in that sort of suspicious behavior if you have something to hide. Now, since he was called out for faking a phone call, he had to answer some questions. Now, I'm going to show you what he said, but first, I want to explain to you, in case you missed it, what was revealed at the last public hearing by the January 6th Select Committee, because he is now implicated in Trump's scheme to overthrow the election. Documents produced to the Select Committee show that the Trump campaign took steps to ensure that the physical copies of the fake electors' electoral votes from two states were delivered to Washington for January 6th. Text messages exchanged between Republican Party officials in Wisconsin show that on January 4th, the Trump campaign asked for someone to fly their fake electors' documents to Washington. A staffer for Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson texted a staffer for Vice President Pence just minutes before the beginning of the joint session. This staffer stated that Senator Johnson wished to hand deliver to the Vice President the fake electors' votes from Michigan and Wisconsin. The vice president's aide unambiguously instructed them not to deliver the fake votes to the vice president. Even though the fake elector slates were transmitted to Congress and the executive branch, the vice president held firm in his position that his role was to count lawfully submitted electoral votes. Joseph R. Biden, Jr. of the state of Delaware has received 306 votes. Donald J. Trump of the state of Florida has received 232 votes which is what he did when the joint session resumed on January 6th after the attack on the Capitol. Now, whether or not there's culpability there with his chief of staff or if his chief of staff was a co-conspirator, that has yet to be seen. But if I'm Ron Johnson and I know I'm innocent and I know that my chief of staff is innocent, what I would say is, okay, you know what? I didn't know about this, but I unequivocally denounce what my chief of staff did. He did not follow proper protocol. He should have reported this to me. Um, we're launching an internal investigation to get to the bottom of this to see how far my chief of staff went in trying to overturn the election. But he doesn't do any of that. Instead, he feigns ignorance. He's incredibly dodgy and he acts really, really suspicious for someone who claims that they're completely innocent. Take a look. Can you explain what happened there? Why was your chief of staff even offering this to the vice president? This was a staff-to-staff staff exchange 
and I was, you know, basically unaware of it. And the chief staff contacted the vice president's staff, said, do you want this? They said no, and we didn't deliver it, and that's the end of the story. But why was he even asking for that? Because somebody delivered this to our office and asked to deliver that to vice president. Did you support the, his efforts to try to get those slates to the vice president? No, I, I, I had no knowledge of this. Who's, who's the person? I, I, had no, I, you know, I, I had no involvement in an alternate state of uh, slate of electors. I had no idea this thing would be delivered to us. Got delivered staff to staff. My chief staff did the right thing. Contacted the vice president's staff. Uh, they said didn't want it, so we didn't deliver it. Who's the person? That's, again, that's the end of the story. So as you saw, he was being conspicuously dodgy, playing dumb, but I just don't believe him. I'm sorry. Republicans lie all the time. They have a reputation of compulsive deceitfulness, and I just, I don't believe them. Are you honestly telling me that you had no idea about what your chief of staff was doing? If you genuinely were ignorant to what was happening around you, then that shows that you're a bad leader because you didn't know that one of your staff members was engaged in a plot to commit election fraud and overthrow the election. But I mean, your question, your answers here to these questions don't really make sense. Oh, this is a nothing burger. We've released a statement. Hang on a second, because there's so many unanswered questions and you really seem uncomfortable answering these questions. I mean, you tried to fake a fucking phone call. So tell us more. Who delivered the document? You said that somebody delivered the document. Who was that individual? You said that um, your chief of staff is the one who's implicated. Sure, that's what the hearing exposed. So why didn't your chief of staff notify you of this plot to overthrow the election and instead just tried to give these to the vice president? And your chief of staff also implicated you, to be fair, and said, hey, Johnson needs to give this to the vice president. So there's a lot here that he doesn't want to tell us, and his behavior is incredibly suspicious. Now, because of this expose by the January 6th Select Hearing Committee, well, there are now calls for Ron Johnson to resign, and rightfully so. As Brett Wilkins of Common Dreams explains, quote, Ron Johnson actively tried to undermine this democracy. He literally tried to hand Mike Pence fake ballots, Wisconsin Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes said in a statement. Once again, Ron Johnson has proven he's a danger to our country and our fundamental rights. I'm calling for him to resign immediately. State Treasurer Sarah Godlewski argued that it is clear Ron Johnson is a threat to our democracy and is unfit to continue serving in the United States Senate. Former state lawmaker Tom Nelson called Johnson a criminal and a traitor who should be prosecuted. Quote, he must resign, Nelson added. Milwaukee Bucks executive Alex Lasry, also running in the primary to oust Johnson, tweeted that Trump and his MAGA allies planned, promoted, and paid for a seditious conspiracy to overturn an election they lost. And Ron Johnson attempted to deliver it to D.C. on a silver platter. Yeah, and they're absolutely correct here. And they're correct to call on him to resign. Does that mean that he will resign? No. I mean, he's not going to resign. But still, for his chief of staff to now be implicated, for him to now be implicated, and for him to be this ignorant, it just doesn't add up, right? So uh, let's assume for a second that he genuinely did not know that his chief of staff was trying to deliver fake electors to the vice president that his chief of staff did not let him know that he was the one to deliver this to the vice president. Don't you think that with this investigation, with the potential of this being exposed by the select hearings, that his chief of staff would come clean to him at least? No. So something's not adding up here, and he looks really fucking conspicuous and guilty. So the extent to which he can be prosecuted, again, we don't necessarily know, but you can tell he's sweating. And for good reason, because he looks really, really guilty here.
Well, after weeks of uncertainty, we now know the outcome of the Democratic Party primary that took place in the 28th Congressional District of Texas between progressive Jessica Cisneros and right-wing anti-choice Democrat Henry Cuellar. Unfortunately, he won, albeit by the skin of his teeth. As Zoe Richards of NBC News explains, progressive challenger Jessica Cisneros conceded to Representative Henry Cuellar of Texas on Tuesday after a recount and a repeat of their 2020 matchup, making Cuellar the Democratic nominee for November as he seeks a 10th congressional term. The race was decided by less than 300 votes. Cuellar issued a statement Tuesday declaring victory. Quote, it is now time to come together and win the general election in November. I am an American. American, Texan, then a Democrat in that order, and I will continue to fight for Texas values and not let coastal elites bring their failed agenda to our communities, Cuellar said. Very interesting that he denounces coastal elites when Nancy Pelosi, the quintessential coastal elite, helped him eke out a victory here. And he wants to come together after he and his allies put up billboards smearing Jessica Cisneros as a homewrecker. Notice how he didn't want to actually debate on the substance because for all intents and purposes, this is a Republican. He's a right winger. He's socially conservative and economically conservative. So what incentive does Jessica Cisneros have to come together with you if you lose then the outcome will be the same for people in this district. That seat will be occupied by a conservative. So what difference does it make if there's someone there with a D or an R in front of their names? Now, sure, you can say that sometimes even corporate Democrats are different than these Republicans. But for all intents and purposes, Henry Cuellar is a fucking Republican. So he is ideologically indistinguishable from a Republican. So there is zero incentive for Jessica Cisneros to come together and back you. There's no point. In fact, if I were Jessica Cisneros, what I would do is refuse to endorse him and actively campaign against him, endorse any third party candidate who's running. Or, you know, if there's no sore loser laws in that particular district or state, then I would just run as a write-in candidate against him. Sink his campaign, go down in a blaze of glory because it really doesn't matter. Voters already lost. They're getting a conservative in that district. So why does it matter if she sinks this corrupt corporate Democrat? I mean, perhaps the Republican candidate is less corrupt than Henry Cuellar. His home was raided by the FBI for ties and or potential corruption with Azerbaijan. So him losing materially will make no difference for voters in that district. But the one caveat to this uh, strategy, if you want to call it that, is that she probably wouldn't really be able to challenge him again in a primary. And she has every reason to challenge him. She lost very narrowly, so she has a great chance of beating him. But really, what made the difference here was Democratic Party leadership, and she took to Twitter to explain how, because of them, she lost. And voters in this district in particular are going to lose out on a really great progressive candidate because Democratic Party leadership intervened here. She writes, we always knew this was an uphill battle. We were up against a corrupt political machine, Republican-funded super PACs, big oil, the Chamber of Commerce, dark money groups, big pharma, and nearly the entire Democratic Party establishment, and we still refused to back down. With this close of a margin, it's clear that without their aggressive interference in the lives of South Texas families, we would have won. The biggest thing holding us back from pursuing the change we deserve is their fear. Fear of change, fear of the future. The only way you defeat fear is with courage and determination that in the richest nation of the world, we all deserve to thrive. Change is a process and through this process, we're educating our community and we deserve better than the status quo. Now she's correct that she probably would have won had Democratic Party leadership not intervened. 
but she's wrong that fear is what drove them to intervene. This isn't about fear. This is about corruption. Nancy Pelosi, James Clyburn, and Steny Hoyer, Democratic Party leaders, are corrupt. They are beholden to their donors. And because they were looking out for their donors' interest, they wanted to stop Jessica Cisneros, who is unbought. So since she's not corrupted, the policies that she would propose and fight for would be antithetical to what the Democratic Party's donors want. That's why they intervened. And it does her no good to pretend as if fear is the factor here. Fear was not an issue. It comes down to corruption, period. And really, we have to stress how awful it is that the Democratic Party leadership intervened here. I don't think that normie Democrats and MSNBC brained liberals know how corrupt and ruthless the Democratic Party is only when it comes to the left. They literally endorsed someone who was raided by the FBI, who's corrupt, who is anti-choice. I mean, if you have a Democrat who is fiscally conservative, but socially liberal, at least you have something there to pitch to voters. But this is someone who is functionally a Republican. So the fact that they intervened to stop a progressive woman who likely would have won had they not interfered truly should be outrageous to every single Democratic Party voter. Even after he was raided by the FBI, they refused to withdraw their support for him because they would rather have a corrupt right winger win than a progressive woman. And this is what the Democratic Party does. This isn't the only race where they intervened, right? So these leftist candidates who do not take corporate money, it's already very difficult. They're at a disadvantage because they don't have super PACs running ads that cost millions of dollars in their favor. So whenever there is this progressive that has momentum, what happens? The Democratic Party establishment intervenes. Back in 2021, let me remind you, before Nina Turner lost, Early polling showed that she had a 35-point lead against Chantel Brown, who also, coincidentally enough, was facing an ethics probe in Ohio because of corruption. It seems like Democrats love their corrupt Democrats. But they couldn't allow Nina Turner and the left to win, so they had to intervene, bring out the full force of the, you know, establishment, even trotted out Hillary Clinton's dusty ass to endorse Chantel Brown. And once again, they won. Now, they don't always prevail, for example, they did this with Elliot Engel to try to save him from Jamal Bowman, but Jamal Bowman still won. But this is what happens every single time. Whenever there's momentum for a leftist candidate who excites people, they intervene and they crush that individual. And it's truly disgusting. And people have to know about this because a lot of individuals do not know how corrupt and ruthless the Democratic Party's leadership is. Now, thankfully, Bernie Sanders, having been the victim of the Democratic Party crushing him himself multiple times, decided to call out Democratic Party leadership, saying billionaire funded super PACs and the Democratic leadership are celebrating the defeat of Jessica Cisneros, a strong young progressive and the reelection of a reactionary Democrat. Now you know why there is no grassroots energy in the party and Democrats are in trouble for November. And he is absolutely correct here. But he needs to name names. But he's right overall. I mean, as the planet dies and becomes uninhabitable, literally, and as our country descends into fascism and an authoritarian state, do you honestly feel like the Democratic Party is fighting Republicans more than the left? No. Currently, even though we have a Democratic president, it feels as if Republicans are in control. Largely, that's due to the Supreme Court. But it feels like even with regard to rhetoric and setting the agenda, it's not Democrats, it's not the president who's setting the agenda. It's the right in this country. So where's the fight there? Where's the pushback against all of these lies about LGBTQ plus people being groomers? 
Is there any fight from Democrats when it comes to Republicans? No. The only time they show a sign of life, a willingness to fight, is when they have to intervene and sabotage the campaign of an insurgent progressive like Jessica Cisneros or Nina Turner. And after they do this, after they kill momentum, kill grassroots activism, they then turn around and blame voters for either not giving them a large enough majority to get anything passed, or, you know, they blame the left for losing elections. I mean, you have no fucking message, and the wing of your party who is energized, you crush them at every opportunity that you get. So, I mean, is it really a surprise that you're incredibly unpopular with young people and you continue to lose elections even in the face of fascism? I mean, it should be a no-brainer. Everyone should come out and be motivated to come out to support Democrats given the alternative. But they're so bad, so undesirable that they end up making their fucking base hate them. And that's really, that, that says something, given the climate in this country, right? Now, one more tweet from Bernie Sanders here. He says, think about this. Are we truly a democracy when you've got a handful of billionaires able to contribute hundreds of millions of dollars to elect candidates who represent the interests of the wealthy? Is that really the kind of democracy we want? I don't think so. And the answer, at least for Democratic Party leaders, is yes, that's what we want. We don't want these progressives elected because we don't want them to piss off the party's donors. So we'd rather tank them, piss off the base, and remain in good standing with our donors. Like, they were given the opportunity, like, years ago to choose. Are we going to represent our donors or our base? Because what the donors and the base wants conflicts with each other. They're antithetical, right? So you have to choose one or the other. And Democrats unquestionably chose their donors over their base. And now we're seeing how that's paying off for them. It's leading to Republicans crushing them. I mean, this November is going to be a complete fucking bloodbath. And I want to say that they deserve it because of how bad they're doing. But voters don't deserve this. Voters don't deserve to be forced to choose between a far-right fascist political party and a conservative Democratic party full of geriatric elites who don't give a fuck about their base. So, I mean, this is incredibly frustrating, but it's good to see some members of the Democratic Party call this out. But you've got to name names. Don't be afraid to say Nancy Pelosi. James Clyburn did this. It's not going to make you less popular. If anything, it'll make you more popular because if the Democratic Party's base understands what's happening and you educate them, that will help you make the case in future elections when they do inevitably intervene. So I'll leave that there. Jessica Cisneros lost. So she should either have another rematch in 20, um, 2024 or she should just run as a third party candidate or write in a candidate. It doesn't matter at this point. Henry Cuellar is a Republican, so voters in the 28th Congressional District have the choice between a Republican or a Republican. Well, if it doesn't matter ideologically at this point and materially won't change anything, fuck up that race. They sabotaged you, Jessica, so I don't think that anyone would hold it against you who are voters, your supporters, if you chose to do the same to Henry Cuellar. Fuck unity. So I've been covering elections for quite some time now on this channel, but never have I seen a Republican do so poorly out of the gate after they just won a Republican primary as I have with Dr. Oz. I mean, he face planted immediately and now he's in a really poor spot and it's still really early. So you can't definitively say that he's going to lose. But regardless, currently, as it stands now, he's losing by a lot and he knows it. In fact, he sent out this email with the subject titled losing by a lot. And in bold letters, he explains to his voters, quote, Dr. Oz is losing by a lot. And it cites a poll that indeed confirms the fact that he is losing by a lot. 
Now, in an interview on Fox News, the host is going to low-key clown on him for doing so poorly. And uh, in this interview, Dr. Oz is going to not only downplay the fact that he's doing really poorly, but he's also going to be a little bit deceitful about the endorsements that he's received, and he's going to piss off someone in this particular interview. Take a look. You essentially have an open field right now. I'm, John Fetterman's not campaigning. That, that must be a, an enormous advantage for you, at least in the early stage. It seems pretty obvious. Right? I'm working my tail off, and I like so the opportunity. So if, if that's the case, not to win a race like this would be a shocker, don't I you would, think? I, I think I should be favored. I think I probably am. In fact, in the betting lines, I am. <laughs> but, but I'm not betting on my own race in but, that but way. But that poll suggests you're traveling significantly. It, you know, if you look at that poll, it's fascinating. If Republicans, when they realize that we are a unified party, and that's what I spent this past week doing, traveling from Pittsburgh up to Erie, across to Lan you know, Lancaster, Harrisburg, up to uh, Wilkes-Barre. When you do that, the the, and, and all the Senate candidates that I was competing against have endorsed me, the party rapidly unifies. Yeah, they did. That already happened in the Democratic Party a month ago. So it's a time issue. I love the beginning of that video. You know, to not win a race like this would be shocking, don't you think? And then he tries to downplay that poll that he knows is pretty damning by saying, oh, well, you know, we're up in the betting markets and I think that I'm the favorite. But then the host chimes in again saying, uh, but that poll suggests you're trailing significantly. Ouch, that's that's brutal. I mean, this is this is your home turf. You're on Fox News. So if you can't appease them, if you can't please them and convince them, you're in bad shape. But at least he has Sean Hannity because Sean Hannity has been going out of his way to spread as much propaganda at the behest of Dr. Oz as he possibly can. And maybe that'll help him. But either way, he said something in that particular clip about how the Republicans who ran against him are unifying behind him. Now, I'm not necessarily sure if he misspoke. He wasn't necessarily clear there, but he heavily suggested that all of his GOP primary opponents had coalesced behind him. But that's not actually true, and one of them spoke out against what he's saying here. As CNN's Daniel Dell explains, it is not true that all of Oz's former competitors have endorsed him. While Oz has been endorsed by three of the four other major candidates from the May primary, second place finisher David McCormick, who received about 31.1% of the vote, fourth place Carla Sands, about 5.5%, and fifth place Jeff Bardos, about 5%, Oz has not been endorsed by third place Kathy Barnett, who received about 24.7% of the vote. Quote, no, I have not endorsed Oz. He knows that, Barnett said in an interview on Tuesday. She said she wasn't surprised the truth may elude them sometimes, given how she said they lied about me during the campaign. That's not all she had to say about Oz. She added that about 70% of Republicans voted against him, despite his endorsement from former President Donald Trump. She argued that Donald Trump won this election for Oz. It wasn't Oz. And even though she said that she was open to eventually endorsing and campaigning for Oz, she also said, I have a lot of issues with Oz and who he presented himself to be. So that's his former opponent calling him out. Now, to be fair to him, when it was evident that she lost and the votes were still being counted, at least the mail-in uh, ballots were still being counted between him and David McCormick, she did say in a CNN interview with Brian Selter that she would likely support the Republican nominee. Having said that, though, she did not explicitly endorse Dr. Oz. Um, now, when CNN reached out and asked him for clarification, they said, I don't know, we're, we're not saying that she endorsed Dr. Oz. We're just saying that Republicans are uniting behind Dr. Oz. But that's not what he's been saying. That's not what he said in that interview. So, um, yeah, Dr. Oz is just a uniquely terrible candidate, and he reminds me of the Republican equivalent of Hillary Clinton. So out of touch, so rehearsed, so 
desperate to try to find a way to appeal to working people, so he cites gas prices and inflation, but in actuality, this multimillionaire has been a celebrity now for a very long time, has no fucking idea what normal working class Americans deal with. Um, now, one thing that I've got to point out is part of the reason why I think he's losing, aside from the fact that he's a uniquely bad candidate, is his really sharp pivot in the general election. An Axios article published on Tuesday highlights the not-so-subtle ways that Dr. Oz has tried to distance himself from Donald Trump, changing his social media banners, removing mentions of Trump's endorsement from his website and social media, and also in the ads that he's running on Google, he's no longer mentioning that he was endorsed by Trump, and he's just generically referencing the need for Republicans to win a majority in the Senate. And if you just won because of Donald Trump, because his base was galvanized, because he endorsed you, to immediately do this pivot and distance yourself from Trump, I mean, it makes you look like a fraud, right? And we all know that Dr. Oz is a disingenuous, inauthentic fraud. But if you're this obvious, if you're not even at least trying to be less conspicuous here, it's going to turn off voters. Now, again, I don't want to say that his defeat is a foregone conclusion because a lot can change between now and November, and he could just get lucky and ride on the momentum that Republicans have going into the midterms. But still, it's hard to deny that he is one of the worst candidates on the Republican side that I've seen in quite some time. And even he wouldn't deny that he's doing bad because, again, he sent out a mailer saying, I'm losing by a lot. So look, you love to see it. I hope he crashes and burns. Get fucked, Dr. Oz. I hate these celebrities who think that they can jump into politics as if they care about issues affecting working people, as if they have something to offer. You don't have anything to offer. You're a celebrity. Live in your mansion and fuck off. You have everything already. So political power is not something that you need to better your life. I don't know if you're bored. I don't know what it is, Dr. Oz. Take up a fucking hobby. But either way, we don't need you in politics and we don't want you in politics. If you live in Pennsylvania, vote for John Fetterman. We Americans are the most spoiled people on earth. That was Republican Senator Rick Scott at the Faith and Freedom Conference reminding everyone how much he hates the American people. Now, that portion of his speech went really viral because of how grotesquely wealthy he is. So for him to talk about how other people are spoiled, I mean, it's the height of irony. As the Tampa Bay Times reports, U.S. Senator Rick Scott is worth at least $166 million and likely much, much more, according to a disclosure report he filed Tuesday, making him one of the richest members of Congress. The Florida Republicans' investments include holdings in defense contractors and in a telecommunications company, according to his annual financial disclosure. Scott serves on Senate committees that regulate those industries. Scott's disclosure also showed he and his wife, Anne, have potentially tens of millions of dollars invested in private funds run by Scott's former financial advisors, effectively allowing him to circumvent disclosure requirements. Yeah, so it is truly insane to have one of the richest members of Congress, if not the richest member of Congress, denounce the American people and call them spoiled when more than half of Americans have medical debt, half of Americans can't afford an emergency, nearly 4 million American children live in poverty, and that could be less if he supported the child tax credit, but he does not. And despite these facts, he hates Americans so much that he literally pushed a plan to shift the tax burden even more onto working people with his absurdly comical Rescue America plan that even Republicans had to denounce because of how shamelessly antagonistic it was towards the working class. Now, if you just watched those few seconds of his speech, you would think that he's trying to make an economic argument, but really, in his broader speech, he attacks 
the militant left. And essentially, he lambasts members of the left because they dare to criticize aspects of American society. Take a look. We Americans are the most spoiled people on earth. We've been given such a great heritage. And we're taking it for granted. The founding fathers of our country, men like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison, men who are now considered to be evil racist, according to the top scholars in America's elite universities. These men set us on a course for success the world has never before seen. We survived the War of 1812, the Civil War, World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, the Cold War. But now today, we face the greatest danger we have ever faced. The militant left wing in our country has become the enemy within. You may think that's pretty dramatic, right? Calling them the enemy within. Yes, I am, and here's why. Let's do a quick situation report. The militant left now has seized control of our economy, our culture, and our country. When you turn on the news at night, do you even recognize this country? Are you worried for your family, and are you worried for your freedoms? The, the woke left now controls the Democrat Party, the entire federal government, the news media, academia, big tech, Hollywood, corporate boardrooms, and now even some of our top military leaders. They are working hard to redefine America, silence their opponent, and that means each of you. They're destroying just about everything they touch, and they've got their hands on everything. So just think about what they're trying to destroy. It's a long list. American history, patriotism, border security, gender, traditional morality, capitalism, fiscal responsibility, opportunity, rugged individualism, Judeo-Christian values, free speech, law enforcement, religious liberty, parental involvement in schools, and private ownership of firearms. The woke left wants all of that gone. They have a goal of ending the American experiment. They want to replace freedom with control. The elites of the government are telling us what we can and cannot think what we can believe and what we can do. They want complete control of our lives. Woke government run schools. Woke government run health care. Woke government run media. Woke government run everything. In their new socialist America, everybody be, everyone's going to go obey and none of you will be allowed, allowed to complain. <clears throat> if you do speak up, boom, you're going to be canceled. Your views, if you don't conform with Big Tech or Fauci or Neil Young, you're going to be taken off of Spotify, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. They're the modern-day version of book burners. Canceling, silencing, and banning the Internet from the Internet, they're book burners. These are the most narrow-minded and tolerant people our country has ever seen before. Bingo! Sorry, just uh, filling out my GOP buzzword, bingo because he hit on every single one of them there. And I love how in that last portion, he had the audacity to talk about how we're the book burners. The governor of your state has banned dozens of books 
because they're woke. And we're talking about math books. So how a math book can be woke, I don't necessarily know. But already just watching that, it's idiotic. But there's a number of questions that I have. First of all, what is woke healthcare? What does woke healthcare mean? Is that different from regular healthcare? Or is it just a twist that you put on it to dupe Americans into believing that we should continue to be gouged by private insurance companies? Also, um, another thing that he pointed out is um, that our founding fathers are now being referred to as racist, and apparently that's bad. Um, look, if you think that our founding fathers were not racist, you'd be an imbecile because they literally owned human beings as property. So if they had literal slaves, then yeah, I think that it is reasonable to deduce that they were racists. Pointing that out isn't bad, but really what this is about is his party currently is put on blast because of the January 6th Select Committee public hearings, where we are learning in great detail how his party of insurrectionists and authoritarian fascists tried to steal the 2020 election away from its rightful winner. So this rhetoric is nothing more than deflection, and his party is dominant despite being out of power currently. They're still setting the agenda, but yet they're the victims. The left is the one who's victimizing them, despite their cultural hegemony, despite heteronormativity being the norm, hence the word itself and that's what they're pushing so it's it just it's truly bizarre to me that um he'd say all of this but i mean all the things that he says they're inherently contradictory and this really is a thing that fascists do right they're, they're inherently hypocritical and contradictory on one hand they'll portray their opposition as really big and scary and trying to destroy society but simultaneously they're also really weak and they're snowflakes and they're, they're hypersensitive yeah so, you know, Rick Scott is a complete clown. And no, needless to say, if you have criticisms of America, that doesn't mean that you want to destroy America. It means you want to improve America. If you don't have criticisms of America, I'd argue that you don't really care because to suggest that any society is perfect would be idiotic. It'd be almost cult-like. But I mean, Rick Scott is in this death cult known as capitalism himself. I mean, why wouldn't he be? He's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So he's a piece of shit, and I don't think that this surprises anyone, but I'd be remiss to not leave you with a video of one of his constituents when he was the governor of Florida absolutely putting him on blast when he dared to show his disgusting face at a Starbucks, and this was just um, the highlight of the year when it came out, so enjoy. The spirit of homosexuality is of their father, the devil. It's not them, the person. It's the spirit that made a home in them. And it came from them overreacting to some sort of a situation in life, whether it's from someone uh, uh, messing with them when they were kids or overreacting to an angry mother because you become like what you hate. So it's an evil spirit and they can overcome it. 
if they don't accept it as a right. They have to see that, yes, they're stuck into it, but it's something wrong with it. And in that, they're able to overcome it. God will remove that spirit away from them. That was a clip from a video titled How to Stop Being a Homosexual by anti-gay conservative radio host Jesse Lee Peterson. And publicly, he's denounced homosexuality as a sin on numerous occasions. But privately, we know that Jesse Lee Peterson himself can't quite quit that cock. And the reason why we know this is because he accidentally outed himself like an imbecile in 2020 by liking a gay porn tweet on his public Twitter account. Here's my coverage of that. As you can see, you know, he he has all of his likes here and he liked a tweet from Donald Trump where Trump says, make America great again. And then if you scroll down a little bit more, you see that he liked a tweet from your daddy only fans, XXL boy, where there is a video of part two of a collaboration with Sean Boy and Anthony D. Um, and basically this is the video of two men having gay sex and it is censored. But um, as you can see, um, there is one man eating out another man's booty hole. <laughs> gotcha, bitch. <laughs> he liked this on his public account for his show. <laughs> oh my god. This is like this is hilarious. This is hilarious. And he left that liked tweet up for hours it was there for hours and immediately after he realized that he liked that tweet he set his account to private probably because he's gonna scroll through and make sure that he didn't like any other gay porn tweets because he maybe thought that he was using his throwaway account not logged into his public account and um i'm sure he's got to make sure everything is is okay so i don't know if he's even going to speak to this but if he does speak to this then i would imagine that he is uh He's going to say he was either hacked or one of his interns or staffers did that and they've been fired because they're homosexuals and that's evil. But we all know what this is about. And I think that Lance from the Serfs put it best. How it started versus how it's going. Now, that video blew up, but regardless, he hasn't stopped with the anti-gay hate, even though we now know that he himself is a homosexual. Uh, he even attended a straight pride parade, which you're not straight, bud, so... You don't really fit in there, but regardless, he's continuing with this anti-gay tirade and things just got a lot worse for him because now the evangelicals are onto him and now they're trying to come after him as well. So Joseph Enders of the right-wing evangelical news outlet titled Christian Militant put together a documentary called Amazing Disgrace, which is a name that's admittedly clever, and in it they talk to men who either had relationships with Jesse or claim that he made unwanted sexual advances towards them. Take a look. These stories first came to light when Jesse's former co-host and alleged decade-long gay lover exposed him. So uh, we were sitting on the bed together and um, all of a sudden he turned to me and just looked, me, looked at me and he said, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And he said it in a, in a tone that was really insistent. And I'd never seen this tone from him before. It was like kind of scary. It kind of scared me. Like, like what? What do you want to do? I knew what he meant. And then I told him, well, okay. And at first I'm scared and I'm like, okay, well, I'm, I'm playing along here. It kind of threw me off my game, I guess, in a way. I think later I realized that's kind of something that 
people do sometimes. It's, it's like the devil works in a certain way by intimidating you, and it throws you off your normal game. And so he said, what do you want to do? And he's like, okay, I'm scared. And then uh, I said, I told him what I want to do. I, I mentioned sex acts, you know, that, we, that he knew about that I had already talked to him about that I was interested in. And next thing you know, he's ripping his clothes off and coming at me, basically. And I did the same, took my clothes off. And next thing you know, we're, we're fully at it, having, not, not getting detail here, but basically full-on uh, sexual acts. Former Bond House manager, 50-year-old Robert Santner, alleges he witnessed similarly strange behavior in 2021 between Jesse and current Bond producer, James Hake. What I witnessed him, him and Jesse, were hugging in, hugging each other intensely, uh, rubbing up, rubbing each other's shoulder down stuff, and he came to a point where I actually saw him kissing him on the cheek, kissing him on the cheek and stuff, on the hallway, and talking all kinds, I can't remember what the words he said, but there were a lot of giggling, a lot of giggling in the hallway, in his James room, and then there was even one time that just really shocked the living the hell out of me, is I went to the laundry room and stuff, I mean, after I checked the, took the laundry out, and then when I got out and there was a door open in Jesse's room, and um, there I saw Jesse was sitting in the bed and while James Hake was <clears throat> wrapped around bed sheets, completely around like a burrito with his head sticking out. And Jesse was like embracing him and hugging him and stuff. And then kissing him on the forehead. And I was like, uh, hey, are, you, are you all right? My dude, they were more than all right. They probably just got laid. So um, yeah, really funny. Um, something that stood out to me was the nonstop porno music in the background of this supposedly serious documentary. Um, very weird. I guess it added to the ambiance. But one thing that isn't necessarily clear is how many of these advances were repeated and unwanted. Because you have some men in this documentary, which you didn't see, saying that Jesse Lee Peterson hit on them and tried to engage in sexual activity with him and it made them uncomfortable. But they don't necessarily um, say that there's a pattern with them. It seems as if he'll hit on them or make his move and then move on. But yet they still claim that he is a predator and exhibiting predatory behavior because according to this documentary, just being a homosexual in general means that you're a predator by definition. So a lot of these claims here, you know, it's, I don't know if they're alleging anything like nefarious when it comes to illegal activity, right? But that last guy that we heard from, they claimed that Jesse Lee Peterson tried to groom him. And that is a fundamental misuse of that term because you can't groom a grown man. Grooming refers to pedophiles who prey on children. So the use of that word has been completely bastardized by conservatives and that's bad because grooming is something that is very serious that must be stopped. But they just say, oh, well, if a gay person is like, kissing in public, they're grooming. No, that's not what that means. But either way, so there's one of Jesse Lee Peterson's friends who has apparently been confronting him about this for years, which I did not know about. My assumption initially was that the first time when people learned about Jesse Lee Peterson potentially being gay was when he added himself. But apparently, you know, he's kind of been pretty brazen despite being in the closet all this time um so watch this clip and then towards the end you're actually going to see a humanist report easter egg because yes they took a portion of our clip and they play it so take a look here's a video of francis from march 
facing off with him at what appears to be the post office across the street from the Bond studio. Oh, that's nice. He wants me to tell them how I was sleeping with my brother's wife. That's fine. But Jesse, why will you not speak on your homosexual behaviors? Francis confronted him again in the back of the building with Armand Martikian in February, capturing it all on video. Jesse Peterson, I've known you for 25 years personally. Will you come? See, he's not coming over to me. Will you at least stand there where you feel safe and talk to me. Stand up on your porch with the door open and, and, and shout out to me. Why won't you talk to me? I've known you for 25 years. I've accused you of heinous things and you will not talk to me. You coward. Francis admits there were also a few clues that should have revealed Jesse was a homosexual long before he ever found out. He wanted to see if I was willing to have a homosexual relationship with him, of course, because that's what he was all about. This isn't even the first incident. Jesse was embroiled in a homosexual scandal in October 2020, after his Twitter account liked a gay pornography image. After the tweet was left up for hours, Jesse's account was immediately locked down and set to private. One caller on his daily JLP show broadcast tried asking him about it, and Peterson hung up on him. Did you lock your Twitter account because you got caught liking a gay OnlyFans post? Amazing. Do you think I had my own Twitter stuff? Oh, somebody else was did it? How come you locked the account? None of your business. What the, what the? Are you a homosexual or something? No, but it doesn't really why matter. You such no a, why are you such a, a beta male? What, you know all that stuff that's going on. It's not real. But you're being a girl right now. What making you be a girl right now? There's nothing wrong with it, Jesse. And nothing wrong with you being a girl? They were they were in. Goodbye. That last phone call was so cringeworthy because you can tell that Jesse Lee Peterson, who usually has an answer for everything, was scrambling. That was mm, that was really uncomfortable to watch. Um, but if you noticed when they showcased the tweet, there was the white bricks, the iconic white bricks that we were using for our B-roll in uh, 2020 and 2021. So apparently Christian Militant is a pretty big fan of the Humanist Report. Thanks for watching. It's so amazing. The one thing that I thought that was funny about that was the guy that said, I've accused you of heinous things and you will not talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so weird because the heinous thing that Jesse Lee Peterson overall is being accused of here is homosexuality. He's bad because he's, he's a homosexual. But to me, the reason why I take issue with Jesse Lee Peterson is because of the hypocrisy. On one hand, publicly, he preaches hate. He convinces people that being homosexual is a sin and you can change and you shouldn't be gay and it's bad and you should feel bad and reject your children if they're gay or trans. But yet, privately, he's hitting on like every single guy he comes into contact with if this documentary is accurate. And I'm sure that they're, you know, embellishing a little bit here, but he's very clearly gay, right? But yet he is um, not willing to admit this and he's still preaching hate despite everyone already knowing that he's gay and maybe he's gay with his uh, producer. It's just bizarre. You know, the whole situation is really bizarre. Usually when you're caught, like Ted Haggard, this is another reverend who was caught. He was a hate preacher and he was caught with, I believe, a gay prostitute and meth, I want to say. Maybe it was coke. I'm not sure. But once he was caught, he was done. But Jesse Lee Peterson is trying to pull this Trumpian move and he's just trying to push through it.
Very, very bizarre and bold strategy, but regardless, it seems to be working because he has a relatively big platform and he's still getting thousands, thousands of views every single day. Now, I've got to say, I am sensitive to outing. Having been an individual from the LGBTQ plus community who's been outed myself, it's traumatic. It's something that you should never do. However, I firmly stand by the belief that if somebody is going to preach hate and they themselves are gay and we find out about it, I think we have a responsibility to out them, right? Because that's one less person preaching hate if we can get them to shut the fuck up once they've been exposed. Jesse Lee Peterson, however, is relentless and he's just sucking cocks behind the scenes and still talking about how homosexuality is bad and attending straight pride parades. Jesse, listen, if you see this, which I'm assuming he will actually, um, it's never too late to turn your life around and stop being a fucking imbecile, right? You're what, 60? probably maybe almost 70. I'm not necessarily sure, but it's not too late to change, apologize for all of the horrible things you've said about LGBTQ plus people, and then try to fix the things that you've done to hurt gay people. Try to right those wrongs and preach the opposite of hate. But he maybe just feels like, well, it's too late. I'm old, so I might as well just continue down this trajectory where I publicly denounce gay people and privately hit on every single guy I come into contact with. Again, like, I don't want to necessarily say that because this documentary is anti-gay itself, so they inherently believe that gay people are promiscuous. So, I mean, if you're going to take Jesse Lee's, uh, Jesse Lee Peterson's life, and this is everyone that you can find who he's hit on, then, okay, probably, probably not necessarily any different than straight men, right? But he seems pretty confident with himself, and he hits on a lot of dudes. And that to me is a little bit shocking because you're around evangelicals, you surround yourself around social conservatives, and you'd think that he'd have some self-awareness or fear that they might out him if, you know, he, he hits on them and then they don't take it well. But no, he, he can't quit that cock, as I stated. So, um, yeah, bizarre situation, but... um. Here's my policy on Jesse Lee Peterson. Anytime he opens his mouth and says homophobic or transphobic shit, then we have to share this video, not the Christian militant video. Share this video because don't give them any clicks or views, but share this video. Share the link to this video, right? A couple of weeks ago, he slammed Fox News for running the pro-trans segment. Okay, fine, Jesse, you want to do that? Well, we'll remind you about the skeletons that you have in your closet. And, and to be clear, you're seemingly not doing anything wrong. I mean, if you're making unwanted sexual advances repeatedly, then that is sexual harassment and that's not acceptable. But that's not necessarily clear in this documentary. But if you're just a gay person, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. As the caller who uh, asked him about his gay porn tweet pointed out. But if you're going to lie to people and you're going to preach hate, then that's a different story. So, you know, we're not going to let you live this down, Jesse, so long as you keep being a bigot publicly, because what you're doing is hurting LGBTQ plus people. So if you're a part of this community secretly, but publicly you're trying to hurt and damage this community, then fuck you, we're gonna expose you, sorry. Today, the Supreme Court handed down another batch of rulings, and the question is, which civil rights and civil liberties did we lose today, folks? So the first is they decided to gut Miranda rights. So in the event a police officer arrests you and doesn't read you your Miranda rights and you end up self-incriminating, and then later on, that self-incriminating evidence is used against you in the court of law, well, you can't sue the police officer who failed to read you your Miranda rights. Now, the reason why Miranda rights are incredibly important is because most people, I'd argue, probably don't know 
about their Miranda rights. They don't know that they have the right to remain silent. So when you don't remind them of that, they could likely self-incriminate. So that's why this was an important civil liberty and important for police officers to do. The Supreme Court said, mm, don't really care. Now, on top of that, they also stripped away our right to remain safe and secure in this country by striking down a New York concealed carry regulation. Josh Gerstein of Politico reports the Supreme Court has ruled in favor of gun owners who want to carry their weapons outside the home, striking down New York State's rules, giving local officials broad authority to deny such permits for almost any reason. Writing for the majority, Justice Clarence Thomas said New York's requirement that gun owners show proper cause to carry a weapon outside the home for self-defense violates the Constitution's guarantee of gun rights. Quote, we know of no other constitutional right that an individual may exercise only after demonstrating to government officers some special need, Thomas wrote. That is not how the First Amendment works when it comes to unpopular speech or the free exercise of religion. It is not how the Sixth Amendment works when it comes to a defendant's right to confront the witnesses against him. And it is not how the Second Amendment works when it comes to public carry for self-defense. Yeah, so I mean, anyone with a brain can acknowledge that it is abundantly clear how these far-right Supreme Court justices are detached from reality. They're actually comparing the right to purchase a deadly weapon designed to kill to somebody saying something unpopular. Well, you don't have to get a permit to say something unpopular, therefore, why should you get a permit or show proper cause to get a permit to uh, buy this weapon to kill people? And sure, most people will not purchase a gun with the intent to kill people. Perhaps they get it for self-defense. But I want to be abundantly clear here. New York did not ban concealed carry. All that they are asking, reasonably so, is that if you want a concealed carry permit, you simply show proper cause. Why you need this. So that way, if somebody says, well, I want a concealed carry permit because I plan on robbing someone, the state can say no. But the Supreme Court is saying, actually, they don't have to show proper cause at all. They could just get a concealed carry permit. That's unconstitutional. Now, they are limiting the scope of this ruling to New York's law, but other states who have similar laws will likely see uh, their law struck down in the coming years. As Zach Schoenfeld of The Hill explains, Thomas noted in his majority opinion that some other states have similar restrictions to the one declared unconstitutional on Thursday. Thomas explicitly referenced proper cost standards like the one in New York and laws enacted by California, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Washington, D.C. Yeah, so needless to say, those laws in those states are on borrowed time right now. So what this case does, what this ruling does, is it drastically expands gun anarchy and limits the state's ability to enact gun regulations that curtail the level of violence that we see in the United States. But the implications are broader than that. Slate's Mark Joseph Stern explains that this new test that the court is imposing on states, quote, will render many, many more gun control laws unconstitutional. And he adds, before today, about 83 million people about one in every four Americans lived in a state that strictly limited concealed carry to those who had a heightened need for self-defense. Now, zero people live in such a state. Now, we haven't even gotten to the most absurd element of this case. Because of the precedent that they're setting, well, the gun legislation that the Senate is working on right now, the bipartisan gun legislation, because of this precedent, that legislation could eventually be struck down. Literally. And I just want to for a second remind you about that gun legislation. It is not even the bare minimum. It will not do enough 
But Republicans are presumably trying to go along with something just so people can get off their backs and they can use this as an excuse after the next mass shooting and say, well, we passed something. So this is not even sufficient. It's not going to curtail gun violence, but there's some good elements in it. However, the far right Supreme Court is establishing a precedent that would likely claim that this bipartisan gun law, which is milk toast, is unconstitutional. So they're going further than the far right Republican senators currently. Schoenfield continues, Adam Winkler, a professor at the UCLA School of Law, raises doubts about the court upholding red flag laws, which allow courts to confiscate weapons from someone deemed a danger to themselves or others. A law like a red flag law, part of the Senate compromise, is a new modern innovation, he said. There is no historical tradition of taking guns away from people who are in crisis. He also raised alarm bells about the legislation's closing of the so-called called boyfriend loophole. The legislation would expand existing regulations that prevent abusers in certain circumstances from obtaining a firearm to abusers in romantic and dating relationships. So because of this ruling today, well, the law that the Senate will likely vote on this week could and will likely eventually be struck down. That is how extreme this Supreme Court is to the right of Senate Republicans. Now, Biden denounced the decision in a statement, but one thing that he said following this news really rubbed me the wrong way, and I want to get to that. So, CNN senior reporter Edward Isaac Dovier writes, Biden in a statement on the Supreme Court guns decision sent to reporters by email says, I call on Americans across the country to make their voices heard on gun safety. Lives are on the line. Now, I'm sorry, I've got to ask, what does that even mean? You are the president of the United States. You have power currently, and you are calling on a nation of Americans who are powerless in the face of corporate overreach and far-right extremists to do something when you're the one who's supposed to act? I mean, Biden just about seven days ago signed legislation expanding security for Supreme Court justices. So, I mean, if we want to protest in front of their homes, uh, which would actually get their attention, then I guess that's frowned upon now, hence the need for more security because they can't trust the peasants to be civil. So, I mean, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to protest? Do you want us... What exactly is the takeaway, Biden? You have the fucking power. You are the president of the United States. If you truly cared, then nominate a new Supreme Court justice to the court. There is no constitutional restriction on the number of justices. And since Republicans packed the Supreme Court already... You can argue that you're simply unpacking it. Balance the court. Nominate someone. He has a couple of months left, and I guarantee you, this isn't even a possibility that he's entertaining. Now, let's get to some responses here. Ellie Mistal says, People need to understand that one of the only things keeping conservatives in line 20 years ago was the concern of political revolt if their decisions were too extreme. Now, they don't fear that at all. They think the opposition is too weak. They're going to keep doing this. And he's absolutely correct. Jason Campbell writes, Apparently, our right to shop, go to school, attend church, and live our lives in safety is less important than overgrown children pretending to be a John Wayne character. Kate Smith writes, Sorry to be controversial, but maybe everyone frantically refreshing a website to figure out what rights they still have isn't the democracy we think it is. Exactly. I mean, we are losing multiple civil rights and civil liberties every single week at this point. This is unsustainable. People are losing faith in the Supreme Court, in democracy. Our institutions are being delegitimized. And this much instability, this much extremism within our government is going to lead to the downfall of this regime. 
And for those of you who are excited about that, hoping something better will emerge, how close do you think we are to a socialist regime compared to a fascist authoritarian dictatorship? We're closer to that, I'd argue, than socialism. So it, things are just going to continue to deteriorate and we will have feckless leaders who are supposed to be the opposition just sitting by and saying, man, I wish somebody could do something after they just got elected two years ago. It's just, it's ridiculous. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to really process this information. You know, it kind of just rolls off my shoulders because we're all accustomed at this point to losing rights on a weekly basis. But really, don't let them dupe you into believing that this is an expansion of rights because an expansion of gun rights, that might be technically what's happening here. But this is curtailing the rights of American citizens who want to be safe and secure in their fucking countries. But because gun anarchy is what the extremists want, well, that's what they're giving us. They're ruling with an iron fist and they're saying, if you don't like it, shut the fuck up and take it. It's just, I don't know how bad it's going to get in this country. It's truly horrifying to think about a year or two how much more civil rights and civil liberties could be taken away from us. Next week, they will likely strike down Roe v. Wade. And they're waiting to the very end because they know how unpopular that'll be. So, yeah, really horrifying situation, but this is the United States of America. We are an empire that is dying before our very eyes. And at this point, who knows what rights will be left after this far right Supreme Court is done with us. At its public hearing today, the January 6th Select Committee finally named the Republicans who sought pardons from Donald Trump. And this is probably the least surprising list of names ever. So as Politico reports, several top Trump White House aides at the time, including Special Assistant Cassidy Hutchinson and aide Johnny McKenty, described outreach from multiple members of Congress seeking clemency. Representative Andy Biggs, Louis Gohmert, Scott Perry, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Matt Gates. Additionally, according to the former Trump aides testimony, Representative Mo Brooks sent an email on January 11th of 2021 asking for all-purpose pardons for every lawmaker who objected to electoral votes from Arizona and Pennsylvania. Representative Jim Jordan never asked for a pardon, but did request an update on the status of requests by other members, Hutchinson said. Now, keep in mind that these requests came just days after the January 6th insurrection. And to actually seek out a pardon means that you believe you broke the law and you're fearful of prosecution. So for them to seek a pardon, this is no small deal. This is huge news. Now, I'm going to play the moment from the hearing from today where they go over these names, and it's relatively lengthy, but it's worth the watch. Days after the tragic events of January 6th, some of these same Republican members requested pardons in the waning days of the Trump administration. Five days after the attack on the Capitol, Representative Mo Brooks sent the email on the screen now. As you see, he emailed the White House, quote, pursuant to a request from Matt Gates, requesting a pardon for Representative Gates himself and unnamed others. Witnesses told the select committee that the president considered offering pardons to a wide range of individuals connected to the president. Let's listen to some of that testimony. And was Representative Gates requesting a pardon? believe so. The, the general tone was 
we may get prosecuted because we were defensive of you know the president's positions on these things. The pardon that he was discussing, requesting, was as broad as you could describe. From the beginning, of, I remember he's from the beginning of time up until today, for any and all things. He mentioned Nixon, and I said Nixon's pardon was never nearly that broad. And are you aware of any members of Congress seeking pardons? I guess Mr. Gates and Mr. Brooks, I know, have both advocated for there to be a blanket pardon for members involved in that meeting and a handful of other members that weren't at the December 21st meeting um, as the preemptive pardons. Uh, Mr. Gates was personally pushing for a pardon and he was doing so since early December. I'm not sure why. Uh, Mr. Gates had reached out to me to ask if he could have a meeting with Mr. Meadows about receiving a presidential pardon. Did they all contact you? Not all of them, but several of them did. So you mentioned Mr. Gates, Mr. Brooks. Um, Mr. Biggs did. Mr. Jordan talked about congressional pardons, but he never asked me for one. It was more for an update on whether the White House is going to pardon members of Congress. Mr. Gomer asked for one as well. Any Mr. Any Perry asked for a pardon too. I'm sorry, I need to finish. Mr. Perry, did he talk to you directly? Yes, he did. Did uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene contact you? No, she didn't contact me about it. I heard that she had asked White House Counsel Office for a pardon from Mr. Philbin, but I didn't frequently communicate with Ms. Greene. Are you aware of any conversations or communications regarding the possibility of giving Congressman Matt Gates a pardon? Um, I know he had asked for it, but I don't know if he ever received one or what happened with it. How do you know that Congressman Gates asked for a pardon? He told me. Uh, tell us about that. He told me he'd asked Meadows for a pardon. Were you involved in or did you witness any conversations about the possibility of a blanket pardon for everyone involved in January 6th? Uh, I have heard that mentioned, yeah. Do you know whether the president had any conversations about potentially pardoning any uh, family members? Um, I know he had hinted at a blanket pardon for the January 6th thing for anybody, um, but I think he had for all the staff and everyone involved, not with January 6th, but just before he left office, I know he had talked about that. The only reason I know to ask for a pardon is because you think you've committed a crime. That may be the only thing that Adam Kinzinger has said that I've agreed with. He's right. There is absolutely no reason to seek a pardon unless you believe you did something wrong unless you believe you broke federal laws so i think it's important for marjorie taylor green matt gates louis gomer to explain to us which federal law do you believe you broke why in particular did you feel as if you were under threat of prosecution what did you do in particular it's time to fess up i mean they can try to obfuscate and distract you but we now know that they must be prosecuted. Now, I love the responses following this revelation because uh, what we've heard so far, at least from Marjorie Greene and Matt Gates, is not 
a denial, rather they're trying to deflect. For example, Marjorie Greene tweeted out, I heard means you don't know. Spreading gossip and lies is exactly what the January 6th witch hunt committee is all about. Sure. Matt Gates says the January 6th committee is an unconstitutional political sideshow. It is rapidly losing the interest of the American people and now resorts to sicking federal law enforcement on political opponents. Hmm. That's rich coming from the guy who, when Trump was president, claimed that he should use the Insurrection Act to uh, extrajudicially hunt down and murder members of Antifa. Really, anyone who they deem to be members of Antifa. And yet he's saying, oh, they're just unconstitutionally sicking federal agents on us. No, this commission is constitutional. You know that. And I love how he says, oh, well, you know, the American people, they're losing, they're losing interest in this. Now that you've been named, everyone's losing interest. Actually, my interest in particular has increased after you've been named, Matt. So it's really interesting that you're trying to deflect and notice how they're not denying. They're not saying, I never sought a pardon because they did seek a pardon. There's an abundance of evidence that they sought pardons. And even if they denied, I mean, what's the point? Because everyone already suspected that it was them. Honestly, the only name who I'm surprised to not see is Lauren Boebert, because she literally tweeted out the location of the speaker during the January 6th insurrection. So maybe she's just smarter than the rest and realized if I really seek out a pardon, then that's kind of a little bit too brazen. It shows that maybe I believe I'm culpable, so I'll avoid doing that. But Either way, these folks are shameless, and we have this information about how multiple members of Congress, along with Trump's administration, engaged in a criminal conspiracy to kill democracy in the United States. Now that we have this information, now that they know that we know about what they did, here's the thing that matters the most, I'd argue. If they are not prosecuted, then anything goes. If they can get away with this, elected officials can literally get away with anything. There's no point in having a constitution or having laws if we're not going to prosecute the people who are so brazen that they believed they needed a pardon to escape prosecution. If they can get away from this and not be prosecuted or kicked out of Congress, anything goes. Nothing matters. They can get away with murder at this point. Now, ultimately, by the time these public hearings are done, that doesn't mean that the January 6th committee's investigation is concluded. Their investigation will continue. Ultimately, this is going to come down to Merrick Garland and the January 6th committee can make a recommendation, but ultimately their recommendation is less important than what Merrick Garland chooses to do. Because regardless if they recommend a prosecution of Trump and these members of Congress or not, the obvious thing to do would be to prosecute Donald Trump. That's not to say that it wouldn't get ugly prosecuting a former president, but either we're going to have this constitution and apply it to everyone, including elites, or we're just going to use the law and the constitution against the peasants. I mean, if you don't prosecute them after we now know that they believed they broke the law, then, I, I mean, what's again, what's the point of having a constitution? You might as well get rid of it. Why have a constitution if elites aren't going to be held to the same standards as peasants? All the folks who went to jail who stormed the Capitol, why are they the ones behind bars, but people like Marjorie Greene and Matt Gates can still serve as members of Congress? Isn't that preposterous? Sure, those people who stormed the Capitol deserve to be prosecuted for what they did, but so do the members at the top who were instigating and helping them to coordinate this. 
Okay, so I'm not necessarily sure what the outcome will be, but we can all predict reasonably so that if nothing comes of this, if nobody is prosecuted, especially Donald Trump, then we're just teeing up the next insurrection. And I think that the next individual who tries to kill democracy is going to be successful because they now know nothing's going to happen. So might as well be a little bit more out in the open with it. Yeah, so really interesting, not surprising revelations, but now it's been confirmed. Marjorie Greene, Matt Gates, Louis Gombert, among others, sought pardons because they believed they broke the law. Very interesting. To say that our government doesn't represent us would be a gross understatement because to say that they're out of touch and elites, I feel like that's fairly obvious. But I actually think it goes deeper than that. The issue is that a lot of these people in Congress are genuinely psychotic. And before you say that I'm being purposefully hyperbolic, just consider their priorities for a moment. As Kenny Stansel of Common Dreams explains, the Biden administration's March request for $813 billion in military spending for fiscal year 2023 already marked a $31 billion increase over the current historically large sum of $782 billion during its markup of the the National Defense Authorization Act, the House Armed Services Committee approved by a 42 to 17 margin Representative Jared Golden's amendment to boost the top line budget by $37 billion. The House panel's increase comes less than a week after the Senate Armed Services Committee voted to add $45 billion to Biden's $813 billion request pushing the upper chamber's total proposed budget for national military spending in the coming fiscal year to a whopping $857.6 billion, including $817 billion for the Pentagon, $30 billion for the Department of Energy, and an additional $10.6 billion that falls outside NDAA jurisdiction. Now ask yourself this, do you recall a single pundit asking how we're going to be able to pay for this considering the deficit and the national debt? Has anyone on mainstream media asked, how is it that we can prioritize an expansion of our already bloated military budget, but yet we can't afford um, education, healthcare for our residents? You probably haven't heard that. But what you did hear conversations about with regard to fiscal responsibility was a really important program to feed children in the United States. So at the beginning of the pandemic, the U.S. Department of Agriculture put in place an initiative that would expand meal waivers to students, allowing millions upon millions of students to eat school lunches for free without accumulating school lunch debt. And for international viewers, you didn't miss hear what I just said. School lunch debt is a phenomenon in the United States where students can literally go into debt if they eat school lunches without paying for them. Yeah, that's that's our country. That's the kind of country that we live in here. Um, but unfortunately, you know, the Senate, especially Senate Republicans, didn't want to extend this program for another year. Why? Because they cited concerns about the cost. Now, what is the total cost of extending this program for one more year. You ready for this? $11 billion. Because that's $11 billion that we could be spending on the military or elsewhere, they decided, mm, I just can't go along 
with this program to feed millions of children in the United States. Now, we don't necessarily know what's going to happen, but currently this program is set to expire on June 30th. And after some pushback, our incredibly reasonable senators are fighting for the people by introducing a 90 day extension. So rather than having this program expire on June 30th, it'll now, it now expire on September 30th of 2022. How merciful, a 90-day extension, so that way when the overwhelming majority of children are out of school, that's when we'll pay for lunch waivers. I mean, we have a government that is incapable of meeting the basic needs of citizens, and they refuse to meet the basic needs of citizens, but yet, without question, from the mainstream media, from many politicians, they're expanding the military budget again. I just, I don't know how anyone can view this government as legitimate because every subsequent year, the military budget gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And yet we keep hearing how it's so expensive and cost prohibitive to pay for healthcare for every American to feed students. But there's not a peep from these same motherfuckers about the military budget. In fact, they want to expand that. I mean, I'm not saying that these politicians would have a change of heart if they were named and shamed, but if the media at least educated the American people about this double standard, maybe they'd be a little bit more apprehensive about reelecting these same fucking ghouls every two or six years. Now, um, not everyone, thankfully, approved of this grotesque increase because Representative Sarah Jacobs of California decided to denounce it and announced that she'd be voting against it. And she also um, explained how horrible this is in what I think was a pretty powerful speech. Take a look. Frankly, it's pretty unconscionable that even without this increase, we're talking about a budget of over $800 billion. And yet I will still have constituents in the, in the military who have unacceptable housing conditions. I will still have military families, thousands of whom are on a wait list to get childcare. I will still have over 39,000 members of military families in San Diego County alone who have to visit the food bank every single month. So yes, we need to increase funding for, to expand resources for mental health and housing and childcare. We need to address the impact of inflation on our service members. But these are priorities that we can and we should address within the existing top line number that we have. And if we are really serious about competing with China, we need a better resourced and funded diplomatic corps. We need greater investments in our development practitioners so we have resources to compete with China's investments. We need to invest in our education system, in innovation, in our domestic infrastructure and pandemic preparedness. That is what will determine if we are competitive with China. Not whether we have one more LCS. That, as Chairwoman Spear said, doesn't even work. And as the Pentagon themselves said, they don't need. For the last 20 years, we've been told we need more. But I think it's time to recognize that more is not a policy. And yes, we have a lot of challenges, but there are simply not military solutions to every problem. You mean we can't create lunch bombs to drop on schools? If you can utilize the military, deliver these lunches in tanks, perhaps that would make them more inclined to support this because, uh, you know, as long as we're spending money on the military, that's A-OK. -okay. It's truly just... It's ridiculous. And the fact that there are some lawmakers willing to stand up, that's cause for celebration, I guess, but it's nowhere near enough people speaking out about this. There should be universal condemnation. And when this proposal was announced by Jared Golden, he should be laughed out of the room 
but it was approved, overwhelmingly so. Now, one more speech that's uh, worth highlighting is from Representative Ro Khanna, who denounced this in no uncertain terms. Part of me wonders when we're just going to get the amendment to have a trillion dollar defense budget, because it seems that's where we're going. I mean, every year they're basically adding 30 billion more to what the president wants. And I think that's what we really need to think of on this committee. If you're supporting this amendment, you're basically paving the way to a trillion dollar defense. Is that what we want in this country? A trillion dollars more, more than a half of our discretionary budget is going into defense compared to all of the other needs, the security needs that this country has? Now, obviously, we have major threats with Russia on the Ukraine border, where the president has done an extraordinary job in rallying NATO and standing up for Ukraine. And we passed on large bipartisan majority support for Ukraine, the threat that China poses with Taiwan. But that doesn't mean that we need defense budgets that are more than they were at the height of the Cold War. That was a serious threat too. But we had the imagination and the innovation to be able to meet those threats without consuming over half our discretionary budget. I just want to be clear, there is no country in the world that has anywhere close to ha over half the major power that's putting over half its discretionary budget into defense. And I would rather for us to be the preeminent economy of the 21st century, be investing in the health of our people, in the education of our people, in the industries of the future, as we compete with China. Let me just make one more point about China. You know what China is really doing in 2025? They're not putting all their money in defense. They've got a Made in China initiative. They have a Little Giants initiative. You know what the Little Giants initiative is? It's 4,000 startups that they think are in critical technologies that they're funding. They're funding their universities. They're producing engineers and scientists, millions of them. That's what's going to make America lose if we don't invest in the new technologies, if we don't invest in the new companies, if we don't invest in the new industries, if we don't make more things in America, it is easy to just keep upping the defense budget in this committee. I trust President Biden. I would support his defense budget. But what requires more imagination is to actually get production back, to actually do the things that are going to make us win in the 21st century. Yeah, well, I don't trust Biden personally, but his broader point still stands. These countries who the U.S. government has deemed our enemies, they're not pouring every single penny that they have into the military. In fact, if you look at defense spending for 2022, the U.S. spends more than the next nine biggest spenders combined. So even if we cut our defense budget in half, we'd still be the biggest spender globally by a lot. But cutting defense is out of the question. However, spending money for healthcare and education and student debt cancellation and on school lunches is always met with concerns of how are we going to pay for it? Healthcare, mm, how are we going to pay for that? Education, how are we going to pay for that? School lunches for children, I don't know how we're going to pay for that. Too expensive, sorry, we can't spend a measly $11 billion. It's just absolutely ridiculous. Um, 
our culture is perverted and sick and our lawmakers, our politicians, prioritize spending on death and destruction as opposed to feeding people, literally. And since Ro Khanna brought up Biden, I think he deserves a special fuck you as well for asking for a higher military budget because sure, the House and the Senate, they want to increase the military budget even more than what he's requesting, but he himself is requesting a bigger military budget than the last year. It's a sick situation and I just don't know how this is sustainable because the people, you know, they're already fed up, right? They can't necessarily name what's happening specifically, but they're fed up and it's only going to get worse. So I just don't know how much longer the American people are going to take this abuse, this violence from their government. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.